Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and we have with us the original crew here. We have Cannondale and Trainer Road's Amber Pierce. Hey, everybody. Oh, Amber, I think you're muted. Perhaps it's uh, it's on your end or maybe my end. I just didn't hear Amber right How's when we that? went live, of course. <laughs> and then we also have our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everyone. And we also have our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. So first off, we have two injuries going on right now. Uh, one is Mr. Chad Timmerman. Chad, what's going on with you? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> so last week, or actually two weeks ago today, uh, I was doing the typical morning run and I just rolled my ankle in a pothole in the dark. And I've, I've had this injury a couple times before, but I underestimated the severity of this one and I jumped back into a bit of training way too soon. And now it's becoming apparent that I probably furthered the damage. So um, on the heels of that MED related <clears throat> injury, error on the conservative side. I totally flew in the face of my own advice. And now I'm scheduled for, or I'm scheduling today my MRI because I may actually require surgery. Can you throw the picture? Um, Give it to Maxine. We'll throw it up on YouTube after the fact, or I don't know if we can actually. No, we We can't can't, because we're live. Yeah, we should have gotten that to Aaron earlier. Then that would have taken care of everything. Forum post. It'll be in the forum post. But Chad, your ankle does not look bueno. At all. And no, it still looks my, pretty bad, and I've still got blood pooling in the foot and all that. My biggest question is, why the heck were you running? Yeah, good question. <laughs> we just have a weekly touch-up, just, just something to remind our joints what it feels like to feel impact sort of thing. And it's just a little 5K run we do. We have two different loops, and it's just this standard thing we do. And it was just an unfortunate occurrence just up from my home. So fortunately, I didn't have to walk it very far back. That's not a bad idea though, because when you do, just for all cyclists, if you start start to go into running, your aerobic system will be there, but your joints will not be there. And you can run, you're like a racehorse and you, you're fragile. So that's not a, that's a pretty good idea what you're doing, Chad. Just don't roll your ankle while you're that's running. That's the idea. That's the yeah, issue. It, it's a familiar patch of road and the moonlight was pretty bright, but still I, uh, I forgot that that road is pretty pocked. And now, John, too, you're not in the Trainer Road studio, which is socially distanced mm-hmm. from my office, but what's going on with you? Yeah, just got a, uh, well, we hope it's a cold. We'll see. Um, passed down from my son very kindly. Thank you very much, son. So, and uh, yeah, so we got tests and everything else, but we really try to respect this here at Trainer Road. So we, um, even though really it's only Nate in the office these days, and then Every once in a while, uh, I go in there for recording podcasts, but right now, not worth any sort of risk like that. So I'm just podcasting from home with a bit of a cold. So if I screw things up, I apologize. I'm a little off my game, um, but I'll give it my best just the same. Nate, we have some things that we should probably mention. First off, for everybody listening to this, in particular, like, uh, so we're running ads right now, and they're running them on Facebook. You might see them on Instagram and other spots. And we have something that you could do that would really help with those. Yeah, so just if you see a trainer ad, and you like us, just like it. And if you have a positive uh, comment to say, please uh, leave a positive comment. The social proof on those ads helps so much. Plus, Facebook will see that you are the type of person that is our type of athlete, and that uh, it probably showed to more people like that. So it's a small ask, but hopefully uh, that happens. And today we have, before everyone messages me, messages me about this, Yes, we restrict ads based on Facebook Pixel and signed up users and all that sort of stuff so that we don't show ads to existing users. But there are situations where your Facebook emails aren't the same. There's all these other these other ones where it could happen. So if you see it, that helps. Second thing I want to mention is um, on my Instagram, 
tier.nate, I've done some business stuff and I've had people ask me about a business podcast. We're going to do an MVP. So MVP means minimal viable product, which is you just throw something together, see if it, if it works without putting a whole bunch of work into it. And what we're going to do is Monday, the, I don't know, someone help with what day Monday is. I'm not sure what it is. Okay. You tell me when it afterwards, but we're going to do <laughs> an IG live and I have a whole bunch of business <clears throat> friends, mostly entrepreneurs, and we're just going to take questions and answer them for an hour. And then if that, if people like that, we'll cut it up. We'll put it in a podcast, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, Monday at noon, that is Monday, the November 23rd noon Pacific That's 7am Sydney, 8pm London and 3pm New York. You have to follow me on tr.nate on Instagram and be able to see it. And my first guest is going to be, his name is Tony Ilios. And you know, the spec phone cases, you probably might have a spec case on yours, on your phone right now. Uh, mm -hmm. he started that company and then sold it. So, and he's awesome. He's a business coach now and just really wants to help people really cool, cool stuff. So any questions you have from starting a business, um, working with people that aren't nice to you at work, getting your boss to change something, selling a business, manufacturing, anything. Mm -hmm. It's going to be fun. I'm excited to join it. Nate, do we know the name of it yet? We do not that's know. That's been a hot I, debate item. Yeah. And so the nice thing is we don't need a name to start. We just need to start. And that's <laughs> the most important thing and get some cadence. And we have a, I put some names out on Instagram. I think neither are going to work, but we'll figure it out. We'll announce it later. Mm -hmm. Cool. It'll be awesome. Uh, and then some other things really quick that you can do to help this podcast. Uh, two things, if you can do that this week, that would be huge. Uh, number one, if you can share this podcast with another cyclist, honestly, that's probably the easiest thing and the best thing you can do to help the podcast. Number two, head over to trainerroad.com, head over to trainerroad.com slash blog, all the properties we have and check out all the awesome content we have. We have a ton coming from a lot of different people. So, um, uh, yeah, awesome stuff from on staff folks. Let's just jump straight into a question here. It's from Nick. Uh, so Nick says, hi, all longtime user of trainer road and listener of the podcast. I've become that guy in my tri club who is constantly referencing things I've learned here, uh, for better or worse. My question is about differing bike cadences for different race lengths. I've been reading that cadence in the high nineties are more efficient for sprint distance triathlons, but the cadence in the low eighties are more efficient for long course events. I think I understand why this makes sense mechanically in the same way that a car engine produces more power at high RPM and is more efficient cruising on the highway at low RPM. However, a car engine doesn't have to deal with lactic acid buildup at low RPM. We've talked about the lactic acid myth before, by the way, um, and all the misconceptions that exist around that, but we can say metabolic byproduct. How about that? Um, that can build up at low RPM. He says, so my question is why is it supposed to be more efficient or otherwise gets you a faster overall time for that energy used pedaling at a lower RPM over longer distances? And is this even good advice? Thanks so much. And love the podcast from Nick. So the, the, this is a really common question that we've heard at all levels of triathlon, right? It's very common. Um, there's like an assumption. I mean, even the name slow twitch exists, uh, for, for a reason, right? Like there's this assumption that pedaling slower is better in that sort of environment. And we're going to get really deep into this. Chad, you did a ton of research, which thank you for doing that. Um, Nate leans right back when we say that. <laughs> so, um, but I want to just cover some really quick basics before we go into that to stop people from feeling like they may be experiencing whiplash as we go throughout the, the research here. Um, so the first things first to, to have in mind here for most cycling disciplines that we're talking about, a broad range of cadence is important for race day, or perhaps better said, a specifically, a specific range of cadence is best for that day. 
for example, if you know that you're going to be riding something and it's just really steep and you're going to be under geared, uh, for some reason you will be in that situation. You should be prepared to be able to spin at lower cadences, right? And the opposite is true too. So really it's good to be prepared for a bunch of things. If we're talking about very kind of broader general circumstances, and then it's also to remember, or also good to, re to remember we're good at what we do. So if, if you are a person that rides at 85 RPM and you never vary from that, you'll be really good at that. That doesn't mean that you are worse relatively to other people just naturally at riding at hundred RPM or 70 RPM, but just because you're not used to it means that you won't perform instantly at the level you would expect or hope to be able to perform when you ride at that cadence. So that's why we have like varied recommendations for cadence during a workout trying to work you within a range and trying to help you be specifically prepared, that sort of a thing. So <clears throat> with all that said, those are the general recommendations, but it's fun to dig into the science behind this and, uh, those, and to look into things a little more. <clears throat> those recommendations are based on research. I mean, we're not just pulling this out of thin air. This, there is there's quite a lot of data, a lot of research on this particular topic. And it's a, who it's a, potentially very contentious one. A lot of people have a lot of opinions on it and there is a lot of research which can allow you to bend your take on the issue to, to suit what you believe. There, there's quite a, quite a lot out there. So Nick, I see your questions. Let me, let me reframe them or just restate them. You're, you're basically asking, is lower cadence more efficient? does greater efficiency automatically yield better performance and kind of lumped in with that does efficiency trump higher watts and then is there an optimal cadence these are the questions as i see it so i'm going to address each of those and jonathan gave me away i was going to pretend that this is going to be really quick it's, it's very hot <laughs> i'm gonna grab my again, snorkel i'm just gonna get a snorkel real quick for this deep dive because this one this one's going <laughs> it's it's a long one but i i'm i'm gonna try to make it uh, interesting the whole time and i'm gonna provide a takeaway at uh periods throughout. So I just scrolled through. It is a long one. Chad, do you want us to interject or you want us to let you just let I, you go? No, I absolutely want you to interject. And I'm super happy to see that there's some colored comments, uh, some pink and some orange that wove their way into this this morning, because uh, this is going to be a heck of a long monologue. Behind so, the scenes reveal right there, Chad, yeah. on how we organize ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so we've learned a couple things along the way. Okay, so let's let's talk about that first question a bit. Uh, is lower cadence more efficient? And when we talk about efficiency, we're really talking about lower oxygen costs. There are a lot of ways to interpret efficiency, but for our purposes today and for the purposes of cadence, we're almost always talking about reducing the oxygen cost of exercise, pedaling the bike. So dating way back, like 20 years ago, Veronique Billot, we've talked about her many times. A lot of our workouts are formulated around things she's picked up relative to VO2 max and short shorts and... Uh, the the high the short short VO2 max intervals and she looked at the effects of cadence and stride rate on something that's called the VO2 slow component amplitude and that's a whole lot of scientific jargon but really what she's asking or what she's looking at is do different cadences do different stride rates push us more quickly to exhaustion so she took eight triathletes and they ran and they rode to exhaustion at a particular uh, output. So they, they found a happy spot between their lactate threshold for our purposes, FTP, and 50% of that difference and their power at VO2 max. So mathematically that would calculate out to be somewhere around 110% FTP. So their freely chosen RPM and strides per minute, the, the, the cadence on the bike fell between 72 and 92. 
across across athletes. Their stride rate 90 to 95, so substantially a little bit quicker in a, in a substantially narrower range. And then they had a low cadence uh, intervention where they went just 10 RPM or 10 strides per minute below that. And in both cycling and running, they found no effect on this uh, of, of cadence on this VO2 slow component. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the, the takeaway in this case is that a higher cadence didn't bring about fatigue at this super maximal effort level any lower or any quicker than that slightly lower cadence. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting because when I first started cycling, my my quote unquote natural cadence was to be a real masher. Like I had a really, really low cadence. Um, and at that point, because I hadn't really done anything else, trying to train at high cadence was really challenging and very fatiguing because it required a lot of extra focus from me, which was a higher cognitive load. And that kind of gave me the sensation Drink. that I was getting fatigued. <laughs> nice. Hurts, yeah. nice. That's totally <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs> um, so, but with practice, like later in my career, I specifically trained higher cadence. And as I got better at it, it required a lot less focus and it felt easier. I don't know that it was more efficient technically, but I'm curious about the role of cognitive load in this because, uh, yeah, with no science to back this <coughs> up whatsoever, just based on personal anecdote, um, <laughs> I, I would be really, I, I wonder about that. Yeah. It, it, I feel like that gets compounded. I felt that too, Amber. Um, and I feel like it gets compounded when you get onto variable terrain where traction is tricky. Um, like, uh, Nate, your recent camp that you had at Moab when you're trying to go up tricky things or like ledgy things or anything like that, or even Pike's peak apex on that tricky, like first stage that you had that had some technical climbing and stuff like that. It is crazy how your cadence affects your ability to be able to go up something or go over something technical. And really when you think about it, it's the reason it's so hard. I feel like in a lot of ways, like physically, yes, because you're managing torque and traction, but it's like a crazy refresh rate that's happening with your mind and your body constantly to be thinking of, okay, well at my current cadence and the current force, and then where my tires at, where my body's at, what sort of terrain it's on the traction I have, you're running this constant feedback loop and it can be really straining. And I've noticed that with a lot of people with mountain bikers or in tricky sections, they'll actually in the beginning people, it seems like they stray toward a low cadence. But if they have some experience riding in tricky situations, I see it very commonly, a high cadence is used to get through tricky technical stuff. And in many cases, my brain can't keep up with my legs in that scenario. And I can't compute everything that needs to be happening at the same time as me trying to interpret what's going on at the tire level, because that's so important. It's, it's strange because suddenly every single degree of your pedal stroke has a consequence to you being able to maintain traction and forward momentum. Whereas when you're on the road with perfect traction, you'd simply don't have that. So to your point, Amber, I think that like the, the cognitive load part is huge and it does affect us even on the road when we don't have that sort of tricky scenario, but it's compounded. So if you ever find yourself wondering why you feel so fatigued when you're riding anything like gravel or mountain biking or cyclocross where traction is limited, like a muddy day, oof, those are so tricky. And a lot of it is just because you are running a faster refresh rate almost with all that data in between the tire all the way up to you. It's tough for sure. So Agreed. <clears throat> so, and, and I didn't, I, I didn't dip into that at all, but that is a whole other avenue of interest that we could explore and probably dedicate about this depth of a deep dive. 
<laughs> so, so in line with that, or following along with that same question, whether lower cadence is more efficient, does it lower the oxygen cost? Um, there's a triplet of studies by Verkroysen, and he wasn't the lead researcher on all of them, but he was a researcher on all of them. So we're just going to call them the Verkroysen studies. He looked at triathletes in all three cases, and he used anywhere from eight to nine athletes. So small data pool, uh, and you can criticize it if you want to, but that's pretty much how these things work. You can't get big, big uh, pools, <clears throat> excuse me, of advanced level athletes. And in this case, they were. So they were national or regional levels. All of them had VO2 maxes in the very high 60s, you know, 68, 69, high VO2 maxes. They were competent athletes. So in the first experiment, they did a 30-minute ride, and they followed it with a run to exhaustion. Now, they did three different interventions. The 30-minute ride was always at 90% of their lactate threshold. And the first one, they did it at the freely chosen cadence. And then the second one, they would do the first 20 minutes at the freely chosen cadence, and then they would either subtract 10 RPM or add 10 RPM for the two interventions. So just for that last 10 minutes, they would go a little faster or a little slower in terms of their leg speed, same power output. And then immediately they would do a run to fatigue at 85% of their running velocity. And what they found was that in the, in the slower cadence group that freely chosen minus 20 RPM, time to fatigue took four minutes longer. So they attribute this maybe due to a lower metabolic load in the final 10 minutes of that lower cadence riding. Then they did another similar experiment, three uh, cycling riding uh, experiments where they did 30 minutes of riding, 15 minutes of running, and then they also, in, in almost all cases, they do a, a control run. So they'll take that same amount of time, 45 minutes, and just do a run. So they can see how it compares to not having a cycling bout involved. So with the cycling running bouts, this is where it gets really interesting. They did an energetically optimized cadence, and they found that fell in the 68 to 76. They used gas exchange. They used lab, lab data to determine that. They did a freely chosen cadence. And then they did a theoretically mechanically optimized, and this is based on a Neptune Hole study back in 1999, where they just looked at the neuromuscular perspective of optimizing cadence, and they found that to fall at 90 RPM. So they used these three, three cadences, and what they found was that oxygen consumption increased during the freely chosen and the mechanically optimized, but not the energetically optimized. So the faster cadences increased oxygen consumption a bit. This is not surprising. They also found that there was greater oxygen consumption VO2 variability in both those faster cadences. So it danced around a little more. So the takeaways here are that the oxygen cost of cycling actually went up and that VO2 slow component crept into their runs. So they had to, they, they paid a little more on the bike and then they escalated toward fatigue a little more quickly on the run. And then the other takeaway is that the energetically optimized cadence, that, that low cadence led to a stability in their oxygen cost once, once they got to the run. So they, they held on more evenly as they were running. It didn't creep toward that, that level of, or toward exhaustion quite as quickly. And then finally, another similar study, three cycling and run uh, interventions, and they followed this with a three kilometer run. And then of course they did a control run, which was just the run. So these were 20 minute rides and they worked at 80% of their VO2 max and they either had them pedal at 60 RPM, 80 RPM or 100 RPM. And what they found was no surprise, run performance suffered in all cases if it was preceded by a bike ride. You know, the bike takes a little bit out of your legs, no surprise. But what was surprising that, well, maybe not, but what they also learned was that in the first 500 meters, the stride rate and the run speed were higher after the 80 and 100 RPM rides. So they did a they carried that quicker cadence into a quicker stride rate. 
So the takeaways here is first that there's no significant effect of cadence within the usual triathlon cadence range, according to this study. And secondly, that that 60 RPM was associated with higher sustained fractional utilization during the run. So they had to work at, they were capable of working at a higher level of output, which means it probably ran faster. So, um, and then another takeaway is that they, they previously did a similar study where they used 5K runs and they saw better run performance following this metabolic load reduction. So when they, again, pedaled at that, that 60 RPM, they had slightly better 5K runs. So the overall takeaway for that, that trio of studies is that the metabolic cost tends to increase with cycling cadence. And 60 RPM is in fact the most economical. It's the lowest amount of oxygen for the work performed. Okay, so we know this, this is real. However, that is not the whole story. So, so now the question shifts more towards does efficiency trump higher power? So, aha, aha. Ah, there yeah, goes right? a catch. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, exactly. Cause that's, that's the other thing too. A lot of the time this is for some reason discussed devoid of the context that really matters there that like it's talking all about cadence and efficiency without talking about the fact that, well, power is the main determinant of your speed when you're out on that bike. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so it, it kind of shifts the emphasis to, to mechanism and not really outcome. We want, we want to know, does this improve performance? Can I summarize some of this part? Cause my Absolutely. brain was going in and out and I honestly, this is one of those ones where I act them and I'd like try to summarize. I know what I'm talking about. I really don't know. So the VO2 slow component, <laughs> I totally missed that part. That's where the VO2 creeps up over time. Yeah. So anytime you're, you know, above that theoretical limit, that metabolic limit, whether it's critical power, functional threshold or lactate threshold, you ride above that. And eventually you're going to supposedly achieve your VO2 max if you ride long enough. That's where you're doing like 102% of FTP. But then after a while, it feels like a VO2 max at the end. Supposedly. Yeah. I, I find it hard to believe with such being just slightly above FTP, but when you're well above it, obviously you get there and you get there pretty rapidly, the farther above it you are. So what these three studies are showing is that at the end of your triathlon leg, if you slowed your cadence down lower than what you normally do, pretty low, you would then run faster. Is yes, or, or at least reduce the oxygen cost. So reduce the oxygen cost during the latter part of the cycling so that when you do run, you have a little more energy to devote to running. Great. So that's this has been bros, I don't know, maybe it is reductional science, recommended many times. Although I've also heard the opposite of people say you need to match your cycling <clears throat> cadence because yeah. like you talk, there's a lot of tradition, uh, with coaches about what they recommend. There is. And we've only looked at one aspect or one facet of this whole argument. Right. Okay. I'm back on path or track. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> so again, let me reiterate metabolic cost tends to increase with cadence. So we have to expend a little more energy use a little more oxygen as our cadence improves 60 RPM being the most economical lowest amount of oxygen necessary. However, this brings us to the question whether or not efficiency trumps higher power. So we are typically good at reducing the metabolic cost of repetitive motions, whether it be running or row, eh, maybe not rowing, but running is probably the one that heads the list. We tend to find movement patterns that minimize our energy expenditure. So basically through repetition, we gravitate toward efficiency. It happens whether we're conscious of it or not. But in cycling, we, and when I say we, I mean both trained cyclists and untrained cyclists, self-select cadences that are quicker than the most energy efficient ones. That, that, that for whatever reason isn't our goal. And so, so the question is asked, and one of the studies, I quote, attributes it to muscle mechanical requirements and their activation conditions. Again, a lot of, a lot of <clears throat> scientific jargon, but what they're saying is that muscle fibers, or what they're pointing out, 
is that muscle fibers have an optimal length for force production. So at a particular length of a fiber, it can exert the most force. Muscle fibers also experience an exaggerated decrease in force as velocity increases. So the more quickly we spin the pedals, the less force we can put into them. That's that whole force velocity relationship. It's just yeah. like a power meter, right, Chad? In the sense that the, the faster you spin the power meter, the less force you have to put out to equal a given wattage. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, I can mm -hmm. feel this on the trainers. So like this is so clear when you're on the trainer. If you're doing a steady state effort, if you slow down that cadence on a smart trainer, it's going to ramp up the resistance and you can really feel the difference between 70 RPM at that power output and 100 RPM at that output. It is a massive difference. So I'm, I'm really curious, like, I, and I don't know if this was, I don't think this was part of the studies or anything, but I, it makes me wonder if it's, if this is trainable at the muscle fiber level, like that, I have no idea. And maybe that's a really stupid question. I don't know. I would, <laughs> I would guess that muscle characteristics are what they are. So you have to figure out how to abide their, their rules and their limits. Yeah. But that's, yeah. that's a fair question. So interesting. Know. Yeah. Okay. So this combination, so their, their optimal length for force production, and then this whole force velocity relationship means that peak power is often observed at faster contraction speeds. So faster cadences, faster, faster muscular contractions than peak efficiency. So this creates this peak power and this peak efficiency misalignment, telling us that we can't have both simultaneously, or can we? Back in 2004, Lucia looked at and had a, had a, title, a study that was titled Low Cadences Are Less Efficient in Pro Roadies, and all these studies are linked. So they took, uh, Lucia and, and colleagues took eight male professional cyclists, had them do three six-minute efforts at roughly 360 watts, so high power at either 60, 80, or 100 RPM. And what they noticed was that gross efficiency, and this, this is the, the amount of energy we don't lose to heat. So the percentage that we actually put into the pedals at 60 RPM was 22.4 at 80 was 23.6 at hundred grew all the way to 24.2. So almost exactly the opposite of what we'd expect to see as they spun faster, they became more economical. So the takeaway here, one is that pro riders at high power outputs actually saw improved gross efficiency or economy at increasing cadence. The higher outputs paired with higher levels of competency, because that is a factor, they have to be good at it. They can't just push big watts. Different rules apply. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Nate, so I think you're muted. Better at what you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's about it. Yeah. So this, is, this is an interesting thing because it, contra like it, it, it kind of breaks... There's an assumption that because you're moving faster and this probably isn't, this isn't really looking at the actual mechanical efficiency of the rider on the bike as well at this sort of range too, because if you're not used to riding at hundred RPM, you can feel really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Right? And that's Chad, where, like it can be a. Exactly. That's where the competency enters, enters the picture. So again, you can't just jam on the pedals, push out more Watts and expect those higher Watts at higher cadences to all, all magically work themselves out. Yeah, the subjects that were being studied here were professional road racers. Mm -hmm. So they're the sort of athletes that are really used to this. Like you said, Amber, when you, you started out slow, but then you got used to so much more because I think you had a few hours on the bike by the time you were a pro. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm sure pedaling at high cadence is like that. Chad, do you mind if I take like a quick interlude with this one to kind of just ask like a, almost like an anecdotal example of what sort of cadences we ride at at different events? Because I've noticed that it varies for me and it's absolutely not like a voluntary or an active choice on mm -hmm. my end mm -hmm. yeah, the terrain, to change the that. Dictate, sure. Yeah, like if I'm doing a criterium, it's not uncommon for me to be somewhere really close to 100 RPM. 
I find that I, I tend to ride like a faster cadence then. Mm-hmm. But then if I look at like a cross country race or a mountain bike race or anything like that, I'm almost always somewhere around 85. Is that, am I in a, in a rare situation here? Have you noticed that it changes maybe even TT bike to road bike, something like that? It absolutely does. And then there's actually a, a review that I'll, that I'll wrap this all up with that kind of sums that up. And it was done, you know, about a decade ago and it still pretty much holds true. I mean, there's a whole lot of new data over the course of that last decade, but none of it really refutes these initial basic findings. Interesting. Did you notice that too, Amber, for you? Did like with time trials or, or like a time trial versus a road race, did you ever see like a wildly different cadence? Yeah. And actually, I mean, I would really vary my cadence depending on the terrain too. So if it was early in a time trial and I was going uphill, I would really focus on a higher cadence versus if it were just flat or on a downhill, I could get away with a slightly lower cadence. Um, and I would be much more mindful of that in the beginning than at the end, because I just, the sensation to me was just if I could, if I could maintain a higher cadence going uphill early on that my legs felt fresher towards the end of the race. Um, and that's Mm. pure anecdote, (laughs) (laughs) but it was really terrain dependent for me. And the other thing, I mean, even like in crits, um, having a lighter gear going into a corner so I could spin out of the corner and I didn't get stuck in a big gear when I'm trying to accelerate out of that corner and, and having to mash too hard. So little things like that, um, over the years, but very like not necessarily from event to event, but just like specific components of races. I would, I would be mindful of my cadence for different reasons. Hmm. Okay. Am I back? Stuff. Oh, my entire system audio died all at once. Okay. I don't know what you guys are talking about, but it sounds like these, uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's like just my concussion or what. <clears throat> it sounds like these pro riders have uh, what's it called? Supress? Supless? How do you say it? Supless. Supless. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, sounds I'm like sure the triathletes don't. Into it. Right? And uh, <laughs> sorry, triathletes. Like, I love you too because I am at heart a triathlete. But I wonder if that has anything to do with it, with like how you train and stuff. And also, you don't see many triathletes Question. like spin at 100 RPM when they're going, it just feels weird on a TT mm-hmm. bike where, uh, for pro cyclists, you see it a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Yes. It goes back to Amber's question yeah. about like, which can you train it? Right. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. And it kind of, kind of dovetails into the next question that I hope to answer or at least shed a bit of light on, which is does greater efficiency mean better performance? You know, is, is improved efficiency, the Holy grail. Is it all we're after? Um, one study by Brennan just a couple of years ago, took capable, but, but, but not competitive cyclists. And they had them pedal at 40, 60, 80, hundred RPM or their preferred RPM, where they basically blinded them to what their RPM was. They found out that this preferred RPM settled at 81 plus or minus 12. So we're talking whether they, when they, when they didn't have data to tell them how quickly they were spinning, they landed somewhere between 70 and 90 RPM. And what they found was that peak power capacity occurred at 80 RPM. But the metabolic cost was greatest and the metabolic cost was greatest at 100 RPM, minimal at 40 RPM. This all is in line with what we've talked about so far. So the takeaway with this particular study was that lower cadences resulted in contraction speeds well below the muscle's power capacity. So the speed of contraction was too slow to be powerful. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it is a necessary component to, to crank out big watts. So, and again, cyclists naturally gravitate towards greater power. And this is it's a bit of a side note, but it was interesting because in this study, he, uh, Brennan referred to a previous study just a year prior where they observed an increase in a term series elastic contribution in absorbing and generating energy at a greater muscle tendinous, muscular tendinous unit shortening velocity. So the translation of all that 
uh, scientific jargon is that they were suggesting that quicker spins become more efficient due to an elastic response. I didn't dig into this, but I did find it very interesting because we, we as endurance athletes or cyclists specifically, <clears throat> we, we pedal the bike. So it's all concentric. We push down on the pedals. We push down on the pe pedals. There's no real eccentric component. There's no elastic component of it, but this suggests that as we spin more quickly, we might actually get a little bit of the benefit from that whole stretch shortening cycle that we see uh -huh. when we do plyometrics and, and reactive and explosive training. Interesting. I, like I said, I didn't dig into it. There might not be anything to it, but I thought, I, I thought I'd bring it up anyway. So and there's anyway, probably the overall a difference there's probably a difference in that too, between seated and standing, right? Oh, like yeah, if you're standing sure. up a climb versus seated, sure. that's a really interesting question. And, oh, and it it's cool. just sheds a little bit of light on how very complex all this is. So when you're saying, <laughs> when you're asking simple questions to something like this, I, I can't give a simple answer. There isn't one. It's just yeah, not a simple matter. Be careful the questions you ask you guys. This is <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. Cause I am, I am maybe halfway done here. No, actually the rest we of have this. A we, have a we have a bazooka handy and we'll use it yep. <laughs> no matter the size of the fly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so th there is a really good takeaway from this, though, and that is that it, it is that different race durations alter your priorities. Longer races seem to favor efficiency over watts. News to nobody. Shorter races seem to favor power over efficiency. Again, news to nobody. You can get away with a lot less when your your energy supply isn't as, as big a deal. Okay, so this brings us to uh, one more question, does greater efficiency automatically yield better performance? I think this is the question, right? So Gary 2, 2005 looked at cadence and its effects on 10K performance. So again, we're back to the whole, you know, running off the bike sort of thing. And they had three times 65 minute rides at either a slow preferred or a fast cadence. And the preferred cadence, they basically altered it plus or minus 15. So they went 15 below, 15 above. And this had people settle in the 70s, for the slow 80s, for the preferred 90s, for the fast. And what they found was that cycling affected 10K in all cases with no cadence effect. Didn't matter. This range of 70 to 90 RPMs didn't, didn't affect their, uh, their 10K performance. However, in the first 500 meters, they saw higher run speeds with the quicker cadence, the, the preferred cadence plus 15. I found this interesting because I think the takeaway here is that you, this could benefit a tight battle. I mean, I, I did duathlons for a guy I was so even with on the bike that we always got off at the same time. And I feel like if one of us could have carried a s slightly faster stride rate into that first 500 meters and opened up just a little bit of a gap because we ran really evenly too, that could have been the deciding factor. We're going to do a triathlon where I'm going to come in with Chad. And we're just going to try to outspin each other. I'm just going to go yeah. faster and faster and 140 faster. 140 RPM. <laughs> Get that edge off the bike. Yeah, <laughs> Someone sure film is. that, please. That'll be amazing. It's a playable strategy. This is, uh, all, so like a lot of stuff in science, all of these are contradicting each other. I'm not the only one hearing this, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. It's, it's Annoying. I'm going with this. Okay. So uh, <laughs> back in line with this, does this greater efficiency automatically yield better performance? 2002 study by Jinger or maybe Yinger and colleagues looked at prior cycling on running performance and kinematics. So, you know, how, how you run, they did 30 minutes race pace and they did a freely chosen cadence, which settled around 90 versus a plus or minus 20%, which put them at 110 on the high end, 70% on the low end, followed by a 3.2 kilometer run. So with this slightly faster cadence, 110 RPM that led to approximately a minute faster run than the guys who rode at 70 RPM. 
and they attributed this to stride rate, but no change in length. It didn't change their, their mechanics at all. So as far as kinematics went, foot strike, mid stance, toe off, mid swing, all those things, just the same, no effect. So Nick, this, this may still be shorter than the sprint triathlons or this, the sprint tri runs, which are five Ks if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but who's to say you couldn't drag this, this improvement in run performance out for another couple of kilometers. This is an interesting point, Chad, because it kind of goes down to how like we get used to things and we adapt to things at different scale in the sense that if you're used to that rate just for the last 10 minutes of the ride, then that could, uh, it could affect how you run. But then there's also the other side of it where it works at a bit much bigger scale where it depends on where you train as well. Because I, I like one thing that I could hear from this, if I'm a triathlete listening to this, I think, okay, so now for the last 10 minutes of every bike, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ride at 120 RPM. And then that's just automatically going to cut a, mu- a minute off my run, yeah. right. Uh, based off of that study. But if we're not used to doing that at all, that may bring in a, a different set of circumstances and consequences that could actually harm us and hold us back. Like you can't just do something that you're entirely not used to on race day, even though we do it nonstop, <laughs> but you can't just do something that you're not used to at all on race day. And then assume that it's going to work out like this, especially when we're talking about making your body work at a different rate that it's used to, or just in a different pattern. Yeah. And also to. consider these are all lab controlled experiments too. So they have people riding stationary bikes and running on treadmills. So a lot of variables that happen in the, out, the, the great outdoors do not happen necessarily in a lab environment. Mm. Cool. So I guess the next question then would be, uh, is it optimal? Like, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, so, is, is there the, what should I write? Exactly. And that, so, so, you know, performance aside, is there just, well, performance still included, but is there an optimal cadence? So one study in particular, um, 2009, Ainsley and Kangley pointed out a couple things that I think are worth mentioning. First, the, the literature presents conflicting results. When we talk about optimal cadence, sometimes optimal looks at the energetic cost, you know, minimizing that. Sometimes it looks at minimizing the muscular stress. Sometimes it looks at minimizing perception of effort. This is further confounded in that higher power outputs change things as we just saw. So the authors here, these two concluded that or proposed that the relationship between the energetic demands, between the power output and between the muscle stress, mash them all together is actually optimized where perception of exertion is minimized. So basically do what feels best and optimization takes care of itself. And honestly, I have to agree with this because think about, and we're gonna go with extremes here, but think about a match sprint versus an Ironman triathlon. No one's gonna do a match sprint where they're trying to jam out 1800, 2000 watts at 60 RPM. It's not gonna happen. And no one's gonna ride a 112 mile bike leg at 110 or 115 RPM. So, mm-hmm. th- and they're not gonna need to be told that. That's just gonna take care of itself. They're gonna put this together on their own. Mm-hmm. Okay, so another in line with this, you know, idea of an optimal cadence was uh, another 2000 study. They had these ones I really like because man, were they thorough? They did. They either worked at 100, 200, 300, or 400 watts, and they varied it: 50, 60, 80, 100, or 120 RPM. And they looked at electromyographic feedback, uh, EMG feedback on seven muscles. So talk talk about thorough. And they found that the optimal cadence increases with increased power output. Again, we've discussed this. So the, the one thing they pointed out was that muscle activation at a given power output is minimized at a unique cadence. And that unique cadence is higher at a higher power output. 
So there's a particular combination. And they also cited a previous study by Coast and Welch where they did roughly the same thing. They looked at power outputs between 100 and 300 watts, RPMs between 40 and 120 RPMs with the goal of finding the minimal oxygen consumption combinations. For instance, they found that at 100 watts, 40, 40 RPM had the lowest oxygen cost. At 300 watts, 80 RPM had the lowest oxygen cost. So the, the efficiency of the muscle contraction is actually highest at velocities slightly lower than the optimal velocity for our peak power output. I'll explain what that means. And this was regardless of fiber type. So translated, the most favorable muscle conditions occur when we're just below these minimal uh, VO2 combinations. So for whatever reason, when we ride just below that, everything seems to work out. So the takeaway here is that optimal cadence is different at different power outputs. This, this again, is, is something we've seen before, and it just makes sense. So then I'm going to conclude this with that review that I talked about earlier, which, you know, this was 10 years ago, but, you know, it, it looked at 80 studies that actually fulfilled its search criteria. So 80 studies actually worked for them. And what did they find? 100 to 120 RPM improved sprinting because it reduced the, the force necessary, reduced the neuromuscular fatigue, maximized power output. Yes, it did it at a high metabolic cost, but it's a sprint, who cares? Roughly 90 to 100 RPM may benefit prolonged cycling and road time trials, news to nobody. 70 to 90 RPM might improve ultra endurance performance greater than four hours. And they attribute that to improved economy and lower oxygen demands. So mm. that, that, this was done, what, 11 years ago, looking at 80 different studies, and it basically just told us everything we, we discovered across <laughs> more recent studies and, and some older ones. So to wrap up, is lower cadence more efficient? Yes, bioenergetically. In terms of oxygen costs, it is. Does greater efficiency automatically yield better performance? Does efficiency trump higher watts? Depends. And is there an optimal cadence? Depends. And, and it's really hard to pinpoint. There, there are too many variables. Well, the efficiency, though, that's, is... that's sorry, Amber. There's one, um, there's that one study with the pros, though, where they were more efficient at 100. So yeah. I would not say across the but board. But it depends. That, oh, yeah, you're right. Not across the board. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. This is a yeah, really, it, it, I was just going to say, this is a really good example of why you should never just read one study and draw conclusions. <laughs> Right. Yeah. A great example of that. And here's the interesting thing. A lot of, I guess that kind of what it backs up is the fact that we do within a reasonable range, we're good at what we're used to. We're good at what we, what we train at. And then it's also interesting to see that in this case, it, it, it what we see athletes doing at the higher end of things. And even just, you know, what we've experienced us individual athletes that, you know, Amber is high end, but for the rest of us, non pro athletes here, um, we've experienced something similar and kind of noticed something that gravitates toward that sort of a thing in a criterium, something like that. I'll have faster cadence. Uh, when I'm sprinting, I've looked at all of my sprint PRs or my power PRs for, uh, power output. And they always occur somewhere around like a hundred RPM. Uh, they're, they're a little higher than you'd think. A lot of the time we feel like we put out a bunch of power when we drop it down to 70 RPM in a big heavy gear, and then we can press it really hard. But that peak power actually comes once we can get some spin going into those legs as well. So, so to recap in terms of for triathlon in particular, for Nick in this scenario, if you're doing longer distance stuff, then it seems like the data is showing that if you, you ride at a slightly lower cadence and you're used to that, then that's probably going to be better for you. Um, if you're doing something shorter, then you're probably going to be focusing more on your power output and then you'll want to be doing something faster. Um, so yeah, thanks Chad. 
That's welcome. quite the deep it's, dive. It's my pleasure. This is such a popular topic, and I always, uh, I don't intend to be dismissive, but I have read enough of this to recognize that it's such a hard thing to pin down. But this time, I, you know, it's like I said, such a contentious topic. I didn't want to throw gas on the fire. I didn't even want to stoke it a little bit. So I felt like it necessitated quite a bit of research. For those triathletes out there, if so, this is what I'm going to do when we do triathlon based on what we just read. When I do my bricks, I'm going to experiment in those last 10 minutes and try different cadences and then run off the bike and really try to try to see what my RPE is. We've talked about this a lot. RPE based on the same pace on a flat course with no wind and fuel the same, try to make everything else the same and see how, like, is there one way that I feel a lot better or am I, uh, yeah, I guess it's feel a lot better because the speed is the same. And then I will then, if I, there's one way that's better, I'll use that. And this is kind of like little non-scientific N equals one experiments with yourself. But even there is a mental thing to it too, that if you think it's right, it is right. And it goes, you go faster. So if you do some kind of, uh, I don't want to break the placebo here, but if you do it and you're like, if I do this thing, okay, it's at the end, I'm going to go so much faster on the run and you have confidence going in. It's amazing. Um, and it's the cool thing about this is I'm going to forget this when I do it later. So like, I won't even, it'll be like memento and I'll just run really fast. <laughs> Chad. So, okay. That's so true. I mean, I mean, Chad already mentioned this, but like the, the, the perception of, of, of your effort level is so important. And then to your point, like that mental, when you believe in what you're doing and when you believe that what you're doing is, is the right thing or the optimal thing, that is just like a force multiplier. It's awesome. And we shouldn't discount it. Totally. Mm. Placebo is real and mm. use it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so next one is from David. We're going to get into something that is less bound in terms of the actual turning the pedals and performance, <gasps> but still perhaps even, even greater determinant of performance. What's, There's what's twice Nate, as many Nate's notes on this one as the last one. <laughs> <laughs> this is we're, hitting you with, we're hitting you with two deep dives. And then yeah. after that, we're getting into full on. It's just going to be short ones thereafter. So and hopefully we'll finish it off with the normal one, but lots of rapid fire. <laughs> so, but this one has an application to all of us in various aspects. Unlike cadence, this transcends cycling and really uh, athletic endurance or performance uh, period. So David says, Hey, Trend Road, I listen to all the podcasts and really enjoy them. There's always some relevant takeaways, even if it's a discipline I don't do. So I do a lot of training plans and just roll them in back to back. I get up at around 5 a.m., have a cup of tea, and he says cuppa, and he says he is, a, he is Scottish, so that's me reading it as such. I will not try to imp, uh, imitate the accent uh, at all. <laughs> and he says, uh, and, he's, and I hit the trainer around 5.30 in the morning. I hit my numbers, and then on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I run 10K on a treadmill. All my training is fasted. He says, like my Lord and mentor, Chad, man, David, Chad experimented with that stuff a long time ago. He doesn't do that anymore. So, um, and then he also says, I'll bow when I say his name, which I think is funny okay. there. So, um, <laughs> he says, I do the mid volume plans. I ride outside when I can, but as I'm currently waiting on surgery for a grade three AC separation, which uh, likely is shoulder there. He says, I stick to ri indoor riding. Plus I prefer training with specific goals. I'm not much of a social rider or Amen. person. <laughs> <laughs> Chad's just going to book a flight right now. You two are going to get along great. So solid training, good diet and a bucket load of determination. And the only thing I do don't do is race. I don't have any race goals. And you might ask why. And the answer is fear. 
In a workout session, I can hit my numbers. I can suffer and suffer and get through. When I have done races, the few races that he has done, the nerves and tension just ruin my headspace. Legs feel like a combination of lead and jelly, and all that training and focus just seems to disappear into thin air. Do you have any recommendations on how I should approach 2021? I'm determined to get some TTs and road races in. Thanks for any help we can give, uh, David. So really in the end, this question, you could phrase it in plenty of different ways, but probably one of the more direct ways is how to avoid choking, right? Because he said he has this fear that comes out. He can perform. He knows he can perform in training, but then game time is a very different experience. Um, like Amber, I don't think anybody really has much to add on this in relation to, to you because having been a professional athlete and then swimming at a collegiate level and everything else, you've been on a lot of big stages then. And so you probably have a lot of experience with this. Yeah. And, and I, I really, we are going to spend some time on this just warning you all right now. And the reason for that is that choking has a lot to do with risk and uncertainty. And this, this has applications far broader than just bike racing. And I'll use bike racing, you know, to, to explain some of these concepts, but as you'll see, there's a, a lot of application for this in different facets of our life. And let's be honest, risk and uncertainty, like this is the theme of 2020. So it's pretty apropos to probably what most of us are dealing with right now. Um, and yeah, I, I've definitely, I've worked with uh, sports psychologists all through my career. Um, so this is definitely something that I've personally struggled with. I know a lot of other people struggle with this too. I've learned a lot on this, not only for myself, but through seeing other athletes um, also at a high level struggling with this and finding solutions. So I really want to walk through this so that everybody understands why this happens, how it works, and then offer some tools for what you can actually do to, tr to avoid this scenario. So to start off, let's just define choking, right? So um, choking is a, it is a technical kind of psychological term that refers not just to sport, but kind of any, any type of performance. It could be a musical performance. It could be standing up and doing uh, public speaking, but it's a seemingly inexplicable drop in performance when performing in a high pressure situation. So something that you normally under normal circumstances, you could do in your sleep, no problem, but you add a little bit of pressure or, you know, in, in, in a scenario and suddenly you just kind of crumble under the pressure. Yeah. Jonathan. One thing that I want to, I want to point out with this too, Amber, is that a lot of the time choking is only referred to in the context of when you have other people applying that pressure on yourself, whether mm -hmm. that's an audience or something else like that. But a lot of the, something for us to keep in mind, it also applies when we are the ones, just us putting the pressure on ourselves as well. Right. Totally. Like for a ramp test. <laughs> yes. Right. That's then that's what I'm thinking of. Exactly. Somebody's listening to this and being like, uh, whenever I take a FTP assessment, that's when I, I just can't seem to perform like that. That's a big question that somebody may have with this. So if you're hearing this, don't think that it's just on race day when other people are watching, it could also just be your own sourced pressure that you yeah, have. Exactly. Exactly. So you could be doing a ramp test by yourself in your basement, which is how I do mine. And yeah, pile on the pressure and suddenly everything changes. <clears throat> so how do we avoid this? Well, the way, you know, in order to avoid it, we need to understand how it happens and why it happens. And, and there's a lot of different theories on this, but most of them come down to, um, threat, the presence of threat. And that's going to sound a little bit weird right now, but I'm going to explain what I mean. And all of this has to do with your autonomic nervous system. And I'm going to drill down on that a lot because understanding how your autonomic nervous system works will help you 
work with your autonomic system in order to avoid choking. So I'm going to use a quick example here. Imagine that I've got a 10 foot piece of two by four, a piece of wood, four inches by two inches. You put it on the ground flat and I want you to walk across that 10 feet of two by four. It's no problem, right? You could practically do it with your eyes closed. Now put that exact same two by four across a ravine with crocodiles at the bottom of it. It's suddenly very different, <laughs> right? Like yeah. you probably right now, if you close your eyes and imagine walking across a two by four on the ground, no problem. Now close your eyes and imagine walking across a two by four across a really deep ravine with crocodiles at the bottom. You probably just, there's a physical change in your body, right? Like a little sensation. Yeah. Jonathan. A really good example of this is when you ride your road bike on the road, you can ride either on that white line or right next to that white line for hours on end. But then you get onto a single track and it's bench cut and you're like, I'm going to fly off this thing at any second and exactly. death is awaiting. Right. Yes. Or for me, I experienced this. If I like ride in Whistler or Canada loves to have skinnies all over the place and they're not really that skinny in most cases, a lot of them are as wide or wider than the single tracks that I ride all the time. It does not matter when I'm in that scenario, I am panicked because I feel like I'm going to drop off. Even if it's just like a six inch drop off, which is amazing how it has that profound effect on us, even though we should know that we are capable of doing the task at hand. Well, and that's the crux, right? You know, you can walk across that two by four, no problem. But all of a sudden, all of that training, all of that skill, it just goes out the window because now there's a threat. And that's the difference between the training and the racing. Like you said, the difference between riding that white line or riding a bench cut, the two by four on the ground, that's training the two by four across the ravine with crocodiles. Suddenly there's some other elements there that make it much seem that, that seem to make it more difficult. And that's kind of the race scenario. And the difference between these two situations, the reason the second one is so much more difficult than the first is because of our autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system, it does a lot of really great things. It is responsible for keeping you alive. It makes sure your heart is beating and you're breathing, even though you're not consciously deciding to every inhale and exhale every time you need to, or to contract and relax your heart muscle every second that you need a heartbeat. Our autonomic nervous system is amazing. And two parts of that autonomic nervous system that we talk about a lot are the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So sympathetic is your fight or flight and your parasympathetic is your rest and digest. Those two pieces are part of the autonomic nervous system. But for the purposes of this conversation, I'm gonna refer mostly to the autonomic nervous system and I might just abbreviate it and call it ANS for short because we, we have a lot to get through here. <laughs> um, so part of your autonomic nervous system's job is survival, threat detection. So in order to, for you to survive, you need a system that's going to assess and scan your environment to detect threat. So your autonomic nervous system does this through a process called neuroception. And this is super fascinating. I think I might've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I, I, I just, I think this is amazing. Your autonomic nervous system picks up on really minute cues in your environment. So if you're standing next to somebody on the subway, it is scanning that person, their body language, their tone of voice, micro expressions that they might be making, and it's determining whether or not that person is a threat to you. And all of this is happening below your conscious level of awareness. So your autonomic nervous system bypasses your rational brain and in some cases even bypasses your conscious awareness to detect threat. And the reason for that is if you walked around a corner and there was a snake, 
and you had to rationally analyze the situation and say, okay, I'm six feet away from this thing. What species of snake is this? Is it really a threat? Do I need to do something about it? The, the, the rational thought process is too slow in some cases in order for you to react quickly enough to save your own life. So because of this, what the autonomic nervous system does is you'll walk around a corner and suddenly you'll jump 10 feet thinking you saw a snake, but it was really a hose. So, <laughs> so it's not always going to get it right. But the thing is that you're still alive. Your autonomic system has worked. And so the fact that you jump 10 feet and it's just a hose, yeah no harm done. But if you didn't jump 10 feet and it was a poisonous snake about to strike you, that's a real problem. So your autonomic nervous system is very reactive. It is not rational and it is not within your conscious control. And this is really, really important to keep in mind when we talk about choking. So what does your autonomic system do when it detects a threat? So let's say there is a threat what's gonna happen is your autonomic system is going to activate the sympathetic nervous system. And imagine that sympathetic activation is on a continuum. So early on in the activation process, you're gonna mobilize. You're gonna mobilize resources, activate, get all systems go. This is your state of readiness. You're gonna have, you know, you might feel a little excited. You're gonna feel a boost of energy. You're gonna be very, very alert. And this is sort of that moment where your systems are ready to assess options for dealing with the threat. And this is where you're determining your autonomic system is determining is fight better, flight better, or freeze. And this headspace, this kind of boost of energy and alertness, this is actually really, really great for performances, right? This is great for bike racing. This is great for a musical performance, for public speaking. That is actually kind of a good thing. But then you're going to move through this cycle, right? So now you're moving from a state of readiness into action. This is where your system is determined, okay, this is a lion. So our best option here is to run because we're not going to, we're not going to win a fight against a lion. <laughs> so this is where you actually act. And so your, your body is going to now say, okay, we need to defeat the threat fight. We need to escape the threat flight. And this can also be good for performance, right? Like that little bit of adrenaline rush you get, some degree of this can actually be really beneficial. And we'll talk about that a little more in a second. But there's also a third option, which is the freeze option. And this is often ignored, and this is a really important one to understand. So freeze, let's imagine it's a lion and your body said, okay, flight, let's get out of here. And you start running, but the lion catches you and pins you down. What do you do now? You freeze. And this is what animals do in the wild when they play dead. And this is actually your parasympathetic system coming back online. That's a technical de detail that you don't need to worry about. But freeze is the last resort. This is an involuntary response that is not within conscious control. So this is when animals play dead. And in the wild, this can actually mean that they endure less pain if they're going to get chewed on. Or it might also mean that they die with less pain. But for humans, sometimes this can also be a psychological freeze response where you actually psychologically dissociate from a traumatic event that's going to, it's a protective mechanism so that you don't experience the same degree of psychological pain that you might. This can also be physical, right? You might faint or pass out because it's too overwhelming. This is not good for performance. <laughs> it's also highly, it's very, very much related to trauma. Um, and a lot of people who experience trauma really struggle with this because they get down on themselves for not having tried to run away or tried to fight. But the thing is, 
This is your autonomic nervous system. You don't get a say. It's not rational. You don't get to decide. Your autonomic system decides for you. And so if it decides to shut down and freeze, that's it. That's what's going to happen. Um, so going back to that two by four example, when you're in training, your autonomic nervous system doesn't detect threat. When you're walking across that board on the ground, there's no threat. It's familiar. Maybe you've done it before. These are recognizable patterns. The stimuli are all familiar. Everything is predictable. It's within your control. So your autonomic nervous system goes, oh yeah, we've done this before and we're still alive. So this is probably fine. And you're going to stay in a rational, calm state. Let's say you show up to a bike race. And now you have your two by four across the ravine with the crocodiles. Your autonomic nervous system is going to say, oh, this is unfamiliar. There's more uncertainty here. I feel more vulnerable. I have less control. Therefore, I'm detecting some threat. And your autonomic nervous system is going to activate that sympathetic state. So you're going to go into that mobilization. You're going to move maybe into fight or flight. And you might even move into freeze, depending on how sensitive your system is. And now you're going to have a lot of trouble accessing your rational thought processing, and you're going to have a lot of trouble act accessing even like autopilot motions and actions that you're used to, like walking on a two by four suddenly becomes very difficult because your brain is awash in different chemicals. And now you're in this survival mode where you can't access those systems that you're used to accessing when you're just in training. Mm. This makes me want to get so like, I want to share the things that I do to get over the flight response, but I know we're going to get to the, so I don't want to, but yeah, cause this is like a, a big thing. And this is probably why Nate has mentioned this pl plenty of times on the podcast, but race Jonathan tends to be different than Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. uh, He's a jerk. <laughs> Just kidding. He's very like, focused. <laughs> yes. And that, that's because I feel like I've had relationships with all outcomes, all three outcomes that we're talking about here and done enough racing in my life in different circumstances where I've, and also just had enough like stressful situations perhaps where like, you know, speaking in front of people or meeting new people and having to do those sort of things that I feel like I've become so process oriented to manage all of this. So I'm excited to share all that once we get through more of the, the, the insight into it, but this yeah. is awesome. Uh, yeah. sorry, Amber, keep going. Not at all. Not at all. So one of the key things to keep in mind about your autonomic nervous system is it's going to respond to real and perceived threats in exactly the same way. So it's going to respond to that hose the same way it's going to respond to a snake. It's not always going to get it right. Um, and I want to share a quick story about this to illustrate this. So a couple weeks ago, I was mountain biking with my David. My husband's name is David. So David, if you're listening, <laughs> David, who asked the question, if you're listening, this is my husband, David. And I tell a lot of stories about him because he's my, uh, my training buddy, but he's really good at mountain biking. So he was going down the trail ahead of me and he was kind of watching me as I came down the trail behind him. And it was a little bit more technical trail than I was used to, but I was really like, I was in the zone. I felt really good. And I didn't feel like it was that hard. So I was going through these turns. And at one point he turned around and shouted back to me, wow, great job, hon. You totally crushed that turn. And it was super technical. And suddenly my autonomic system went from like, I'm cool. Everything's copacetic to it just latched on to that one part of the sentence, which was super technical. And my whole system, like I could feel it, my whole body flooded with stress. And I suddenly, I tensed up and the trail got <clears throat> so hard all of a sudden and nothing changed. It wasn't a different trail. It didn't become more technical. Yeah, Nate, you're anxious to say something. <laughs> no, it's just, you just told me your kryptonite for Cape Epic. <laughs> 
Amber, it's getting technical right up here. It's technical, 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 technical. This is going to be amazing. Thank you for this. Uh, by the way, Cape Epic is pretty technical in spots, so be careful. You should be a downhill rider. Wow. That, I'm surprised, Amber. Way to divulge. But now I know yeah. that you know. <laughs> yeah. No, but this happens to all of us, right? And and this was a, this is a great example. Like he was just paying me a really nice compliment, but your autonomic nervous system is so trained to scan and detect threat, it just latched on to the one potentially negative part of what he said. Poor guy, he's trying to compliment me, and I'm freaking out. Um, but that's and nothing in the environment changed. There was no actual threat. It just changed my perception, and just by changing my perception, it completely changed how I was riding my bike and how I was feeling. So this is very real. The other thing to think to remember about this is your autonomic nervous system reaction. It may not always be rational again, like it wasn't in that case, but that emotion and sensation is going to come first. And that's, that's the immediate reaction. And then what's going to come after that is all of a sudden now your conscious rational brain is going to become aware of the fact that there's all this tension in your body and it's, or maybe sudden, you know, you're standing next to a stranger and you just get this really bad vibe. Now, suddenly you're going to, your rational brain, because neuroception, remember that was happening below your level of conscious awareness, but now you have an autonomic response to some threat that your neuroception has detected unbeknownst to you. And you're going to feel it in your body. So now your rational brain comes online and says, oh, we're feeling a different way than we were a minute ago. What's going on? Your rational brain likes predictability and pattern, and it is going to find an explanation for what's going on. And it's not always going to get it right. So an example of this is if you're sitting in a parked car and the car next to you starts to move, this what your brain is detecting is the relative movement, right? And for a split second, you're going to think the car is rolling but it's not actually your rational brain is trying to layer. It's trying to slap on an explanation to what it's sensing and it's not always going to get it right. So I'll give you another example of when I was riding with my David, uh, he was, you know, we were riding along pretty social pace and he started venting about something that had happened at work. It had nothing to do with me. There was nothing I could do to help. He was just venting for the sake of venting as we do to our partners. And I suddenly, I started getting knots in my stomach and I started feeling really tense and I was like, whoa, what's going on? And my, you know, in this moment I was, I was able to sort of think like, okay, my autonomic system is reacting to something here. What's going on? And my rational brain came in and was like, okay, let's think about this. You know, he's not actually mad at me. You know, there's nothing I can do to help this situation, but I'm responding. My whole body's responding as if he were directing his anger at me. And the only reason I was able to do this was because I was working with a therapist um, through some concussion stuff that was making me really aware of my autonomic system specifically. So I was able to say to David, hey, I know you're not mad at me right now and I know you want to vent and I really want to be here for you and listen to this so that you can vent. But for some reason, my autonomic system is just freaking out. So is it okay if we hit pause on this and talk about this some other time when my systems had a chance to calm down? Now if that had I'm happened not going through rock gardens and over roots and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like if, if that had happened a year before, before I really understood what was going on in my autonomic system, what would have happened and has happened in the past is that reaction would happen. I would, I would feel that tension and that kind of knot in my stomach and my, my brain, instead of saying, Oh, my autonomic system is responding to his tone of voice, which is not directed at me. I would have just felt that ickiness mm -hmm. and then responded. My, my, 
my rational brain would say, okay, why am I feeling icky right now? Oh, David is making me feel icky. And then it's going to, my brain is going to start reaching out for reasons that David might make me feel icky. And then all of a sudden my brain is on this track of like, what are some reasons I can think of to be frustrated with my partner? And boy, that leads down a totally different road, right? So what ends up happening is you have this autonomic response and then your rational brain slaps on some narrative to explain it and it's not always gonna get it right. So how does this relate to bike racing? You show up to a bike race, it's a new unfamiliar environment, it's kind of intimidating, your autonomic system floods you with a sense of tension, maybe you're sweating, you're getting clammy, maybe you feel a little bit shaky and that autonomic response happens. So now your rational brain comes in and has to explain it. And your rational brain might make up a story like, oh yeah, well you always choke at bike races, right? Mm -hmm. So your rational brain is trying to explain what this autonomic response is doing. And we come up with these stories that we tell ourselves that slowly over time become ingrained that might not actually be true. Yeah, Jonathan. This is why I, I prefer solitude before a race. Like because I can filter that out. It like, uh, sorry, I'll, 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 I'll just express myself freely here. Please but do. It drives yeah. me so nuts when I'm on the line and somebody starts talking to me. Like <laughs> I can't stand that. It drives me nuts because I'm trying to control my headspace and I'm absolutely vulnerable to, to something, to something pulling me away from that. Now, over time, I've gotten to the point where I can have those things come in because Nate likes to chat before a race, likes to point out all the people that are going to beat him. He's like, this guy's super fast. He's here. This person's super fast. It's like one of the main things that Nate points out before a race. And I understand what he's doing. He's assessing his competition. But for me, it's like I've and I've forced myself to get good at filtering all of that out. But that's a big thing that I see a lot of athletes do. They show up to a race and the first thing they start to focus on is everyone that's going to beat them. And I say it intentionally with those words because that's how it's framed, right? It's Mm -hmm. suddenly like, oh gosh, that person showed up, that person showed up, this is gonna be really tough. I don't know how I'm gonna be able to beat them. I can't beat them. They're way better at sprinting (laughs) or they're going to break away, they're gonna be able to do this. If you put yourself in that situation before a race, you're just opening the door for yourself to have a negative, when we're talking about the autonomic nervous system, have a negative response to this, not one that's productive toward better performance. Right. So it's, it's really, it's really tricky. Um, and that's why I like to, that's the best part about dirt bikes. They're really <laughs> loud and you have helmets on that cover everything and nobody talks to anybody. It's just so nice. And I kind of miss that. So, um, yeah, don't talk to me before a race, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is a great, this is a great point. Cause you rock up to the race and suddenly there are all these things there that aren't there in training, right? There's an audience competitors who might be talking to you when you don't feel like talking. (laughs) There's a possibility of crashing. There's uncertain outcomes. So all of these things pose threats. And I say threats in quotes because these are perceived threats that your autonomic nervous system might pick up on. And this is why a race scenario is so different from training and why your autonomic state is so different at a race than it is in training because the, the stakes are higher. Yeah. Sorry, one more interruption. Oh, sorry. go ahead, Chad. But I was just going to say it, it sparks fear, right? It's fear or anxiety, mm-hmm. but anxiety is a little more before the fact. But And this brings me to a point, and I, frankly, I mean, this is a very scientific discussion of this, and I just want to sit back and listen to it, but I will interject when I have little things of, uh, little, little moments of experience that I can relate from a coaching perspective. And this one is not necessarily tied to that, but I was watching Lady Dynamite the other night, and she said, and, and I, I knew this question was coming, she, she described fear as false evidence appearing real. 
And, and, and I had to think on that for a minute because, yeah, nope, she's exactly right. And the evidence may or may not be false, but the potential outcomes are absolutely real. So when we look at what fear, what we're actually in fear of, we have the physical, which, you know, injury, the psychological, shame, and the interpersonal, you know, the loss of prestige, the loss of respect, the loss of all these competitors um, riding alongside us and the audience watching us. And all these things mm -hmm. are actually real. So as, as succinct as her description was for something as complex as fear, it, it, you can't describe something so pithily. There's just so yes. much more going on. Well, and this is a so great true. point. I see fans or, or just onlookers many times criticize athletes for being robotic in their interviews. And I, I then also see interview, you know, production companies interviewing a rider when they're on the line or right before they're good to, about to go up to the running blocks or something like that. If you're going to interview an athlete in that moment, you're going to get a canned response because they have a canned process they are going through that they can replicate and control the fear like you're talking about here, Chad. They, they, so as a result, you're always going to get, and that's why it's so interesting that you'll see a, a, a NASCAR driver like Jimmy Johnson, and then somebody like Usain Bolt, they'll both have the same type of response they would give to how do you think this race is going to unfold? <laughs> it's going to sound really similar because they're both facing really similar circumstances, even though it's a totally different sport and they're both facing their own challenges with that. So as a result, they'll kind of engineer around that. They'll have process. They'll stick to that. I guess recapping that in a different way is probably the worst way to get an idea of who an athlete is, is to interview them when they're <laughs> on the line or just about to perform, because then you'll just get an athlete's response. And that's mm -hmm. just what it is when a person is trying to control that. So it's, it's, um, also we shouldn't feel guilt. I feel like for, or feel shame for feeling fear before a exactly. race for feeling apprehension or anything else like that, Amber, right? Like, cause if we feel that, that probably only perpetuates the negative response that we would have. Exactly. And that's, we'll touch a little bit more on that in a little bit too, but that's exactly right. Because everybody is going to feel more, more vulnerable and a higher level of uncertainty in a race scenario than you are in training just by definition. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And your autonomic nervous system is going to interpret that increase in vulnerability, that increase in uncertainty as threat. And so, I mean, it, it's just natural, right? When you choose to challenge yourself by showing up to a race, it requires courage because you're risking something. You really, you have something on the line there and it's something to be proud of, but it is, it is a risk, right? And, and your, your physical system, your physiology is going to, is going to interpret that and it's going to respond. And I'm going to talk, I'll give you some more tools a little bit and how to work with that, but I still want to understand the help, um, clarify how this process works. Cause I think that will really help when we talk about what you can do to avoid choking specifically. And Chad already touched on the fact that at a race, you know, there's these additional threats, the physical, I mean, even the anticipation of suffering is a threat, right? Cause you know how bad it's going to hurt when you really have to dig deep. And the anticipation of that, that's a threat, man. That's like a real legit threat. <laughs> and then there's the fear of crashing, but then there's also those existential ones. And Chad already touched on a couple of those, but even identity, the risk of, will this undermine my identity, right? What, meaning are you going to assign to the race outcome and how is that going to affect your sense of self, uh, fear of failure? All of these things are very real kind of existential threats. And I want to drill down on that just for a second. Cause I think it's not, I, I want to clarify that this isn't just about ego in the sense of, and 
ego is a technical psychological term, but what I'm talking about here is kind of that foofy, more bro sciencey term that, you know, like the, <laughs> the arrogance of really caring about what people think, because I think some people might think like, Oh, existential threat. Like you shouldn't worry about what other people think. It's not a big deal. And if you're worried about what other people think, it just means that you're arrogant and you're self-absorbed. No, the threat to identity is very legitimate and very real. And for anybody who has sustained an injury where you couldn't participate in your sport, or like if you're an avid cyclist and you couldn't ride your bike or you're a runner and you couldn't run that temporary loss of identity can be physically painful. Like it's emotionally painful, but the, the pain of the emotion is so much that it can actually be physically painful. It's real. And that identity and that sense of self is legitimate. And so the existential threat, the threat to your identity that exists in a race scenario that doesn't exist in training. I just want to touch on that and say, Hey, it's real. It's legit. And it doesn't mean that you're full of yourself or you're some self-centered jerk. It's just a very human thing that happens, right? We are, our identities are important. So that's a legitimate threat. Um, and kind of dovetailing with this, I want to ask you a question. How did you treat yourself the last time you failed? Did you beat yourself up and maybe kick yourself while you were down? You know, not everybody does this, but a lot of us do. And I have definitely done this in the past and it causes real emotional pain. Um, I mean, it sucks because you're already disappointed in the outcome. And then you spend weeks, maybe months just beating yourself up over it. And it is not fun. So what ends up happening when you beat yourself up for failures is your brain sees this sequence and the sequence goes, bike race happens, failure happens, terrible pain happens. <laughs> mm. And now your brain is going to associate, therefore bike race equals threat. So every time you go to a race and you have a disappointing outcome and then you beat your, you pile it on, you pile on the self-loathing and, and beating yourself up. And I mean, man, we can be unbelievably cruel to ourselves and then, and the point I want to make with this is it's not constructive because you start to strengthen this negative association that your autonomic system is going to have with bike racing and with the uncertainty of the outcome at bike races. And it's within your power to nudge that association in a positive, a more positive or more negative direction. So um, beating yourself up, it causes a real negative association. Your autonomic nervous system, like I already said, it has a negativity bias. So let's say you had 10 really awesome bike races and three really terrible ones where you really beat yourself up. Guess which ones your autonomic nervous system is going to latch onto? Not mm -hmm. the good ones. It's going to latch on the all the ones. ones. Exactly. Because it's scanning mm -hmm. for threat. So it already has this mm -hmm. negativity bias. Um, and then the other thing is it's going, your, your brain likes predictability. So it's going to search for narratives that reinforce or solidify your self-concept. So if you've already just, you know, because of those three races, you've created this story in your head where, oh, I always cave under pressure. Your brain is going to look for confirmation bias. It's going to look for evidence to support the narrative, even if it was only three, out, you know, only three bad races. And then there were 10 really good ones. So I want to step back for a second and redefine choking. Choking is the result of normal hardwired and involuntary <coughs> autonomic nervous system doing its job to protect you from a real or perceived threat. This is not a character flaw. This does not mean that you suck. Okay. This is the normal 
hardwired involuntary functioning of the autonomic nervous system. And it's doing its job appropriately as it is meant to do to protect you from a real or perceived threat. Okay. And this doesn't happen within your conscious control. So for those of us who've experienced this before, it can be extremely, um, distressing. And I'll share a quick story about that, that happened to me. So a couple years ago, I was in a big race and there was a really, really steep hill. And as we're going up the hill, I was just pinned. I was absolutely at my limit and a separation was happening. And I knew that I had to get across this gap. Otherwise my race was over. Like this was the crux moment of the race. So I absolutely drilled it and I got across, I got across the gap and I made it. I made the selection. I was there. I was in the front group. It was awesome. We crested the hill. So all that was ahead of me was a downhill. I had done the hard work. I had gone through the pain. I had suffered. I had made it and I stopped pedaling. I stopped pedaling for like two seconds, which felt like an eternity. I lost contact with the group and I ended up having to chase the no man's land for the rest of the race. And I spent weeks and months just raking myself over the coals for this moment. And I worked with my support psych and we kept going back to the same question. What were you saying to yourself in that moment? What made you decide to stop pedaling? And the thing I couldn't wrap my head around was I never decided there was no inner talk. There was nothing rational happening. It was like my legs just decided to stop on their own and I had no control over it. And it wasn't until I was working with a therapist, um, to heal from my concussion that I brought this story up to her and she said, huh, that was neuroception. I said, what do you mean neuroception? And she said, well, at that point, how long had you been racing bikes? I said, 12 years. And she said, okay, how many times did you crashed by that time? I said, plenty. And she said, and how many crashes has you, had you witnessed in that time? Well, a lot more than that. And she said, your autonomic nervous system and your brain is so finely tuned with that experience that it saw some dynamic, some, some pattern of movement in the Peloton that signaled to you that a crash was about to happen and your autonomic system got you out of there. Hmm. And that's the thing. It's involuntary. It's irrational. It bypasses your whole rational system. So I didn't get a say in the matter. I didn't even know what was going on, but my autonomic system detected a threat and it got me out of there. And in that moment, when she explained that to me, it was literally like years of guilt. And I would, I had been telling myself I was weak. I'd been telling myself I was a quitter. I'd been feeling so horrible about myself. And then all of a sudden to understand that, Hey, actually this is how my body works. And it means it was working appropriately. And it wasn't a matter of missing the selection. It was a matter of saving myself from a crash. My, mm -hmm. my autonomic system worked the way it was supposed to. Yeah, so this kind of goes to a point where you can't you can't fight something that's so inherently like active and strong and just natural, right? Like you have to find a way to work with it. Um, probably a good transition point to start to talk about those very things about how we can actually use this or leverage this or build a favorable relationship with it, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing is, okay, so 
we understand how this works now. And I'm telling you that this is all involuntary and hardwired. So you might be thinking, okay, well now I'm stuck with it. Like there's nothing I can do, Mm -hmm. but that's not true. You can work with your autonomic nervous system and not against it. And you can work with it in order to avoid choking. So the first thing is to accept that your autonomic nervous system, it's your friend. Staying alive is a good thing. And if you're listening to this podcast, your ANS has been working well for you because you are still alive. (laughs) (laughs) If you're listening, you didn't see that. Nate just just did the, eh, also made his hand over there. So (laughs) I'm sure you're thinking of your accident that you recently had, right, Nate? Yeah. And he's muted uh, again, but yeah. (laughs) It's not always going to get it right, but... Understanding how it works and how it's meant to work is, is really, really powerful. Nate, are you back online? Mm. Kind, not really. I think okay. he's having audio issues again. Okay. So one of the good things, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. I was just going to say, let's dive into how to work with it versus yeah. against it. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is your autonomic nervous system and sympathetic activation are actually really great for getting into an optimal headspace for racing. Like I talked about before in that ready state where you have a, boost of energy, you're alert, you're, you're ready to go. That's awesome. And the thing about sympathetic activation is it's kind of a three bears situation where not enough is bad for your performance. And then too much is also bad for your performance, but you want to find the just right. And what constitutes just right is really highly individual. Um, this, and it, and it really ties a lot in with, uh, with emotions and Chad, I think you had some thoughts on this too. Yeah, because coming from the perspective of a coach, I've worked with enough riders to have encountered this enough times. I mean, I can relate to it as as an athlete. I've been through this to varying degrees myself, but being approached with it and having someone kind of lay that at my feet and ask me, the you know person of authority, to help correct it, has forced me to 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 deal with this. And and I I, I won't say I like wrote this down. Here's how I approach this every time, but I did form a pattern of dealing with this. And the first of it, uh, it started with recognition. So David, if if I were coaching you, my first assignment to you would be recognizing what it is that you're, you're fearful of, that you're anxious about, so that you can rationalize it and so that you can reframe it. Because when you recognize that both fear and anxiety stem from perceived threats, not necessarily real ones, it's, it's tremendously empowering. You can start to recognize that they may not happen. They probably won't happen. In that case, this brings me to, to what would be your second assignment, where you turn that fear and that anxiety into arousal. And I think this is where Amber is going. And I hearken back to when Lee came out and taught us or coached us for a weekend, and he described this. He talked about this appropriate level of arousal. And what he was describing, it was the same thing that's described in uh, Shane Murphy's The Sports Psych Handbook. And, and Shane's the, uh, the editor. So in, in the chapter on anxiety, it was penned by Gloria Beleg, who was a psychologist. And she discusses the inverted U theory, which is also known as the Yerk-Dodson law. Yerk-Dodson law, probably seen that. But the idea being is that arousal climbs. So think of climbing up that inverted U. It peaks at an optimum and then it declines. But she goes on to observe, and I completely agree with her, that it's really more like a half hump, like a half of an inverted U that just dives off a cliff. Because it's not as though you're, you're peaking towards that, that, that arousal, optimum arousal level, and then you go a little past it and you're not quite at optimum anymore. No, it's quite the contrary. It's just once you pass it, everything becomes terrifying in an instant. So, mm-hmm. so it's like you drop mm-hmm. off a cliff. And, and, and there's 
there's an issue with that too. Recognizing that I'm so close to that edge can be a little bit unnerving. And then as, as Amber just touched on, it's, it's highly individual varies from, from athlete to athlete to athlete. But what she didn't mention is that it's also highly situational. You can be really comfortable with say going 30 miles per hour on a bike, 30 miles per hour on a mountain bike feels very different. 30 miles per hour on a steep descent <laughs> on skis, so very different. So you have to relate it to the situation too. It doesn't carry perfectly. So then my third assignment for you, David, and, and this is a term I used is that you have to get into your head in order to get out of your head. You need to differentiate the possible from the likely. So you have to think about it so that you can stop thinking about it. And, and, mm -hmm. and from that sports psych handbook, the, uh, Beleg talks about playing, and then they were talking about golf, but obviously this carries across sport. So let's say racing with the intention of avoiding mistakes puts those mistakes right at the forefront of your attention. So, and, and what happens when you do that? Your muscle tension increases, your focus narrows, and typically on unproductive things and your confidence tanks. Yeah, mm. it's like when you're riding a bike and there's an obstacle and you're like, I don't want to run into that thing. And then you're staring at this exactly. thing thinking, I don't want to run do. into it. And then you go straight for it. <laughs> Nate, I've, in talking with you, <clears throat> I've, I feel like a lot of this is probably resonating with mountain biking and your, uh, I would say, a steep learning curve that you've undertaken. I know that you feel like it probably <laughs> hasn't been, but I feel like your improvement's been like a, you've taken your improvement on rather than letting your improvement just come to you. And as a result, I feel like it's been more rapid than others, but is this resonating with you at all? And like, do you have any thoughts on any of this so far? I've got a ton of thoughts, but I want to let them finish because they've got a whole bunch more stuff and mine kind of layers on top of what's written already. Okay. Sounds good. Cool. cool. All right. Um, a couple of people have mentioned I should turn up my volume. So I'm going to have them, I'm going to talk closer to my mic. So hopefully that helps. Um, well, one thing with that too, it's, it's, I'm going to point this out cause we get this pretty commonly, but Zoom is actually, if you're joining us live right now, Zoom is auto-leveling us. So it'll mm -hmm. be quiet at the initial level, and then after that, it will stabilize. But the thing is, Amber has a softer voice, in particular compared to Chad. So when Chad speaks versus Amber, or Nate in particular has probably the loudest one, it'll always seem a little bit uh, a little bit quieter, but it's actually leveled. So, because if Amber went any closer to her microphone, we get like microphone to face noise. So <laughs> she's doing what she can. <laughs> All right, continue. All right. Okay. So choking, like letting your nerves get the best of you. And I say letting your get, that's not a really good wording. Cause as we know, you don't always have a choice in the matter. Um, but choking usually means there's too much sympathetic activation. So what I would recommend, um, for people who really struggle with that too, and the counterpoint to that is that some people really need more activation. They don't have enough sympathetic activation. So it really depends on where you are. But David's question is specifically about choking, which usually is too much sympathetic activation. So a couple things you can do, um, to, to tackle this and it's sort of, and anyone who's listening kind of think about it like this. Like if you feel like you don't get pumped up enough, think about things that are going to help pump you up. And if you get too pumped and your nerves can really undo you, then you want to kind of bring that, that sympathetic activation back down. So think of it as a dial and kind of imagine which direction that you need to turn the dial for your individual situation. But one of the things you can do for this is to build a, a, a race routine. And as we know, pattern and predictability reduce the, the perception of threat. So having a race routine in the first place already is going to bring down that level of threat that your autonomic nervous system is perceiving, because it's going to look at that and go, Oh, this is my routine that I've done before and we didn't die. So, this could be okay. 
And then if you are one of those people who needs to bring the activation level down a little bit, you can include elements in that routine that help dial back activation. So maybe some slow breathing exercises, maybe listening to calming music instead of pump up music. Those are things that could really help. Something that you could do not at the race um, would be to associate bike race stimuli with a calmer state of mind. So you can watch race videos when you're in a calm state or while you're listening to calming music. Um, that's one way. Another way you can do it is to use visualization. You can just sit on your couch and close your eyes and imagine being at a bike race. Yeah. Jonathan. One point to add to this too, forgive me, Amber is even in your training, this could be a great opportunity. If you're really terrified of criteriums, for example, watch our race analysis videos that we have when you're training. And then it's not that real race environment, but you get used to that. And it really does help. I find that it kind of like eases my transition. It puts training wheels on uh, every year as I go into criteriums to have that experience of watching it just because it's kind of crazy. There, you know, getting, there's points in these races where there'll, it'll be a crash in front of me or someone like cuts off my wheel <laughs> and I have literally jumped watching it. And then the comments will be like <laughs> other people jump at the same time because they, they don't realize that to Amber's point, the, the snake versus the hose you're on a yeah. trainer and this is recorded, but you see that pattern happen and you like, physically jump like you're going to swerve out of the ray, which is kind of crazy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So if you're sitting down, like whether it's watching a race or imagining one, you can actually feel your body shift. You can feel the sensations in your body change when that autonomic nervous system starts responding to what you're seeing and you can actually stop and, and notice, okay, what are, what's changing? Am I feeling tense? What are the specific fears that are arising? You can do things like visualize worst case outcomes and imagine yourself handling them really, really well. Um, a good example of this was, I think Michael Phelps at the Olympics one year in one of his events, one of the, I don't know, million that he won, um, his goggles fell off. And so they filled up with water and he couldn't see. And he was in an interview afterwards and they were asking about it and they said, well, you know, wasn't that really disconcerting? And he said, no, actually I spent so much time visualizing everything that could go wrong. It felt like I was practicing handling worst case scenarios really well. So when it actually happened, he was very calm. He didn't react because his autonomic, he had trained his autonomic system to believe that that wasn't a threat. So visualizing can be a way that you can practice managing your fears in a safe environment. And that means that you'll be calmer if one of those things goes wrong in the race because you've practiced in air quotes. And also you'll feel less fear about the outcome because you'll have more confidence that you can get through it and be okay. So I want to get into some specific tools and all of these tools are designed to deliver receipts. And what I mean by that is your autonomic nervous system, your brain, it likes pattern and predictability because that means less risk, but it needs receipts. And what do I mean by that? I mean, If you've just done the last three bike races and it didn't go well and you beat yourself up just sitting on your couch and telling yourself, okay, this next bike race is going to go well and I'm going to be fine. It's not really going to do it. Your brain needs receipts. It needs you to actually go to a race, deal with an outcome and be okay. You have to deliver receipts. So all of the tools that I'm going to explain now are ways of developing a catalog of receipts that you can just show to your brain to say, Hey, this is how, this is how it is. It's, it's really okay. And, you know, getting your, your autonomic nervous system working with you instead of against you. So we're going to build pattern and predictability around bike racing, build a catalog of receipts. So if you have one crash, your autonomic nervous system is going to sound alarm bells every ride until you bank 
10 safe rides, 20 safe rides, 30 safe rides. And after enough of those receipts, your autonomic nervous system is going to go, oh, I guess I can chill out because this is actually a pretty safe thing to do. Okay. Mm -hmm. So here's how to deliver receipts. The first one is to have confidence in your ability that you can handle any outcome. And this is really, this is really key. So if you're somebody who really struggles with race nerves and you're really worried about failing an event, it's really hard to convince yourself that you won't fail because you don't have control of the outcome. It's a lot easier, however, and equally effective to convince yourself that you have the ability to handle any outcome. All right. Mm -hmm. The outcome's not in your control, but how you handle it is in your control. So you can believe that you can handle any outcome, whereas it's a lot harder to convince yourself that you can predict the outcome, right? And this is really the crux of self-efficacy is the belief that the conviction rather that I can fall on my face and be okay. This is the opposite of beating yourself up. Not literally. <laughs> yeah, not literally falling on your face. Sorry, words. <laughs> the room, Pierce. <laughs> so I want to ask everybody who's listening a question. What would you give yourself permission to do or try if you knew that no matter what happened, you would have your own back? What would you do if you knew that no matter what happened, you knew that you could and would still love and accept yourself on the other side. It's a lot, it's, it's, it's a lot to ask, especially if you're somebody who's used to just beating yourself up when things don't go well. Um, but it's important to remember that the outcome of a race is not just the race result, right? How you place in the race, it is what it is. What's really important and meaningful to you and your autonomic nervous system is what you decide that result means about you. And that's mm. a decision that you make. That is something that you have control over. You don't have necessarily control over the outcome of the race, but you have control over what you decide that it means about you. So mm. your brain needs receipts. How do you do this and deliver receipts to your brains? A couple things you can do. One is list times where you failed, but you ended up okay where you had your own back, even though it didn't go well. List times where you really put yourself out there and it actually worked out. And that's gonna help reinforce to your brain that it doesn't matter what the outcome is, you can be okay and you know you can be okay because hey, you've done it before. And this is a way that you use your rational brain to, to deliver receipts to push back on some of that negative bias of your autonomic nervous system. Hmm. So the second thing you can do is to cultivate a growth mindset. And that's in contrast to a fixed mindset. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. So I'll get to a brief review if, if nobody's familiar. Um, growth mindset is where you believe that your ability as an athlete is something that is in constant flux. It's constantly evolving and you have unlimited options for growing and improving. And yes, we all deal with some constraints, maybe genetically or physically, but I don't care what your VO2 max is there is no ceiling on your ability to improve your skills. There's no ceiling on your ability to improve your race intuition and your tactical prowess. These are all things you can always improve. You can always learn. You can always grow. Whereas the fixed mindset says my ability as an athlete is a fixed characteristic. And in that mindset, challenge is very threatening, right? Because if you don't meet the challenge and you fail, then it means you're not a good athlete. Whereas in a growth mindset, 
challenge is actually really exciting because it's an opportunity to learn and grow and apply those lessons to becoming better. So in a, in a growth mindset, your goal is to learn something about how to be a better bike racer when you show up to the race. And if your goal at the race is to learn something about how to be a better bike racer, you can't lose threat level comes down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. And so on this one, the way that you deliver receipts to your brain, because brain needs receipts is to make a list of things that you learned that you can work on and apply in the future. And if you have like a race journal that you keep, start listing these out every time you race. And then when you flip back through it, you're going to be like, Whoa, I've got like 20 pages here of stuff that I've learned. And you might look at something that you wrote down a year ago and say, I didn't even know that thing a year ago. And now I'm actually really good at this. And it's a really good way to kind of deliver receipts to your autonomic nervous system that like, Hey, look at how much I'm progressing and growing and improving race over race over race. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Chad, I know that you have some notes on here, Mm. but can we move on to the next point uh, on, on Amber's next point, if that's okay? Sure. Awesome. Cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's the other way that we can send receipts, Amber, to our, right. to our, to our brains? Yes. Process goals over outcome goals. And this is related to growth mindset. So no one can predict or control outcomes, the race results, but you can control process goals. Things like, Hey, I want to really fuel better in this race. That's a hundred percent within your control. There's a lot less uncertainty, a lot less threat. Um, so keeping a race journal to, to deliver receipts, keeping a race journal and listing your listing, your process goals and how well you met them each race, this will help reinforce to your brain that, Hey, I, I can rise to the occasion and look at all of these times that I did. Um, mm-hmm. the last one I want to say is to examine the stories that we tell ourselves. So again, that selective memory and your brain, it likes to latch on to things that are going to confirm or solidify your self-concept. So if your self-concept is, I always choke, or I'm not a climber, um, these things can get really deeply ingrained. So I'm not going to tell you that you should just start telling yourself that you never choke or you're, uh, you're the world's best climber, because it's really hard to turn a belief around on a dime, but you can nudge it gently in another direction. So one of the things to try is instead of just saying, I always choke, you can add the phrase, the story I'm making up in my head is I always choke or the story I'm making up in my head is I'm not a climber and it kind of softens it and it takes the edge off and it's slowly over time through that repetition. It'll take the power away from those beliefs. Another one you can try is a just for today. So you show up at the race and maybe your self-concept is I always choke, but maybe you show up to the race and you say, Hey, just for today, I'm cool under pressure or just for today. I'm a really strong climber and it's a lot more approachable than completely turning those beliefs around on a dime if you need to. So delivering receipts on this one, list counterexamples to negative self-concepts and stories. If you tell yourself you're not a climber, I do this all the time. I'm very guilty of this. I would make a list of all the times that I didn't get dropped on a climb or times I've actually dropped other people on a climb or times I've actually won races that have a lot of climbs in them. And then, and all of those counterexamples help to combat that negative bias, right? Cause my autonomic nervous system is going to latch on to all the times I've been dropped on a climb. But if I come back with 10 or 15 examples of times that I've actually been good on a climb, that's a, that's a really good way of delivering receipts. Um, and then the last one I want to just say is in the race, these are all things to do in training around the race, but in the race, you really want to stay present and that really helps to keep things calm. Right? So, uh, don't worry about what might happen 30 seconds from now. If you're really hurting, don't worry about like, Oh no, I don't know how much longer I can hold this. 
Easier said than done, I know, but a couple things that really help with this. One is to use mantras. It helps keep your attention on something really constructive away from things that are negative. It brings you back to the present. And the other thing you can do if you notice your brain is wandering is to check in with your senses and bring yourself back. So what am I seeing, smelling, hearing, touching, feeling right now? Um, and what that does is it, it's a repetitive receipt to your brain that says like, Hey, I'm actually okay right now. I'm totally fine right now. I'm okay right now. Even if you're suffering, like you're, it hurts, but you're still in the big picture. You're okay. You're still pretty far from death. Um, so you don't have to eliminate distraction, but you want to just minimize the time between the distractions. So get better at noticing when your brain is going elsewhere and you're not present and then bring it back to the present moment. Mm. This is a fantastic guide on basically how to form a positive relationship with ourselves as racers, really as performers in one aspect or another, because it's super easy to go the other way and to, to build a negative one. Nate, with all that said, do you have anything that you'd want to share on this one? Yeah. Does Chad want to go through his stuff first? Um, yeah, yeah. I, just on time. I've had my um, that's, that's fine, Nate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So please go okay. ahead. So my advice is only going to be for things where when you're at rest, your analytical brain thinks it's not fear. So for me, like at rest, my analytical brain says that Red Bull Rampage is a bad idea. Okay. So that's just, that. just think of that. There's other things I think about where. Yeah. I don't care what brain you have. That's uh, yeah. But you should think of that because there are definitely real things. And there's an opposite where you have, where you know, that is a, uh, you're not really going to get hurt by being at threshold for 40, 50 minutes. Like it's not going to physically hurt you. It's just scary. Okay. So if you are a scare, afraid of choking, here's what you do. You need a lot of reps. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what Amber said about the receipts. receipts, but it's really reps. Imagine if people went into the weight room and they lifted weights and they're like, oh, I am so weak. I could only lift this much. And then that was the end of it for the rest of their life. Because <laughs> yeah. the first time they lifted something, um, that's what they got. You guys, you listen to us, our first podcast. Oh my goodness. Like we were horrible. <laughs> like we've gotten a lot, 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 lot better. And honestly too, we were all nervous when we were first recording, we were nervous. And then when we first went live, like, uh, we were nervous, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And now it's like no big deal. Do you guys have any anxiety now on the podcast? Eh, yeah. Sometimes I get a little okay, bit. John's got some. <laughs> I, I, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Me yeah. Too. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the more you do it, the easier it sure. gets. I bet they all say that totally. it's, it just keeps getting less yeah. and less. Uh, I spoke like speaking on zoom now is so easy to me. I spoke to like 300, um, college kids, by the way, my, my wife makes fun of me for calling them kids. <laughs> She's like, you're old now. But, uh, <laughs> if you, I, I know that was like one of the first times I had no anxiety speaking to a large group. And the more you do that, the better it is. You, you see these famous comics, right? Where Public speaking is one of the hardest things to do. And then on top of that, telling jokes while public speaking, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, comedians in cars getting coffee, they always have stories about when they started off, what did they do? They bombed yeah. over and over and over yep. and over again. And how did they get over it? They did it lots and lots and lots of times. Mm-hmm. I was fine with them. And they said, this is just the progression of becoming a comedian is you have to bomb multiple times. And there is no comedian in this world who went on the first time and just was amazing. And the next time they're on like, you know, the tonight show mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. never happens. It takes years to hone it. Um, for me, another thing is talking to like the kind of person that you're interested in. This can be extremely anxiety inducing. And when you get rejected, you take it personally and think of like, this is the way that I am 
Mm-hmm. Everyone in the world doesn't like me, right? The story you tell. That opinion, you, that opinion defines you. Exactly. Yep. And the more you like that person, the less you act like yourself, right? Because the anxiety is high <laughs> and you're not like how you would be talking to your friends. Right. Um, I don't think I've told this story, but I'm going to tell it. So in, or I'll tell it again. In college, what happened is I used to get a little uh, beers with Chad, kind of tipsy, <laughs> and we'd be at this place <laughs> called The Wall or Flowing Tide. And my friends, we would play a game. I had anxiety talking to girls. We all did. And what they would do is they would just point to any girl and be like, Nate, you go hit on them. And then I'd do it and I'd get rejected and I'd walk back to the table and they would laugh <laughs> and watch and laugh. And we would do it over and over and over and over again until one day the girl actually liked me. And like my, uh, my, my, my anxiety went away because I had so many reps in it. And then I actually, my wife, um, I had known her in college before, but she was at a bar and I was like, hey, I'm just gonna go talk to her. It's no big deal, I like her. And that's how we started the relationship. And I bet you if I never did those kind of reps before, I would have talked to her and been like, boom, stuttered and like not you know, been weird and cre- probably cre- extra creepy. I really, uh, I really want to hear but, her version of this story. <laughs> the Casanova. And, uh, very charming. Yeah. But this, this just like, if you don't get reps, like it's that I, I still get, I'm, I'm less scared at crits, but on when you're on your third crit of the day, that third crit, you're way less nervous than the first crit. Mm-hmm. I have more anxiety in mountain bike races. So I try to do more mountain bike races to be able to get the anxiety to go down so that I perform. When we did the 40K TT, my big mistake, I did not do enough TTs ahead of time. One for like what my pacing should be, but also the amount that I was like nervous because we had built it so much up. And um, so the more you want to be good at something, the more you do it. Mm-hmm. Another thing is race down, David. So like if you are, if you're four watts per kilo and you're doing a cat five race, there's a lot of room where you don't have to be uh, perfect the whole time. Yeah. Where if you're racing at a very, very high level and uh, you get dropped easily, even if you're perfect, you might have some false like conclusions in your brain where uh, oh, it's because I, I didn't perform and really it's just above your head, yeah. right? Any of us, besides Amber, any of us race pro, we're gonna get dropped. Mm-hmm. Amber should, does the dropping. Well, <laughs> stories of that. The last thing is one of the most anxiety-inducing areas for a ton of people is the triathlon swim mm. because there is a serious fear of drowning. You do not do that very much where you swim in open water. And then on top of that, you don't swim with next to other people and on top of that, you don't swim next to the people where they hit you. And then there's a race on top of that, right? And the way to get over that is lots of reps. So out of us four, I guarantee you, when you get in that 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 swim, the person out of us four is gonna have the least anxiety is Amber. Mm-hmm. She's done the most swimming. And uh, honestly, like, so we, we probably won't be in the same wave starting any triathlons because they usually break it up male and female. But can you imagine lining up next to Amber? And you know who she is? So Amber is a little, she's taller, like you're bigger than most women. Oh yeah. You're an extremely good swimmer. You are aggressive, like crit Amber. Like you try to take some feet from her. No, I don't think so. Right? And th- <laughs> she's probably happen. the best swimmer, one of the best swimmers in the entire race. There's not many collegiate swimmers in, uh, in triathlon. And a collegiate um, female swimmer totally beats the best male triathlon swimmers. Right, yeah. like this happens yeah. all the time. A woman will get will be the fastest one. So uh, you also that know that when she like, gets on the bike, she's going to be mm-hmm. extremely. She's going to be. She's a pro cyclist. <laughs> so then the, yeah. there's that on top of it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, but swinging the, if you want to do it, just do lots and lots of reps. So what I would do if I had anxiety on swimming and I used to, but I do not now I did swim team and lots of triathlons is, uh, do open water swims, do open water races, do as many sprints, uh, triathlons as you can, and just get rep after rep, after rep, after rep. And after a while it gets less and less Mm -hmm. and less and less and less until it just feels like a normal day. Exactly. And if I could, Oh, go ahead. Nate's just teeing me up. Too, too much for me to <laughs> bypass my two parting points, my two specific bits of sure. advice for David. Um, first off, I think starting with TTs is a great idea on your part. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned road races also. Uh, start with the time trials because they grant you exposure to a, a competitive environment with a whole lot less unpredictability that you will encounter in a road race. Secondly, they give you a greater level of control over a whole lot of variables. You decide your pacing. You decide your proximity to other riders, which is going to be rare. You decide your speed and turns. All, all those things are completely in your control. You don't get roped into them by riding in a in a group of riders. And then, and then finally, totally in line with what Nate's saying right now, is if I were to advise you to do one thing, David, it would be to ride with others and to do it consistently. Emphasis on consistently. Because... This will give you the opportunity to, to gradually decide if this is something that you find worthwhile. Do you derive enjoyment from it? Do you find it satisfying and rewarding? Do you gradually transition your fear and anxiety to excitement and anticipation? All those things are probably going to mix together at all points to varying degrees, but what emotion dominates? Do you start anticipating races with excitement? Over time, you probably will. And again, through repetition, you very likely will. But through that repetition, you also get to decide and recognize there are a lot of different cycling disciplines. There are a lot of different levels of competition. Again, what Nate, what Nate touched on. And consider you don't have to race. Yeah. I went through a long period where I thought the only way I'm going to be taken seriously as a bike rider, the only way people are going to respect me for being a strong bike rider is if I can tell them I'm a bike racer. Just, just slapping that label on myself made me feel better about it. But man, I, I was still a good bike rider without racing. But anyway, this process is going to allow you to find your proper fit, allow you to determine, is this something I actually want to pursue rather than just assume it is? I want to just close this one on, on one final point. <clears throat> um, we can trick our, ourselves pretty effectively in a lot of ways into managing uh, fear in a situation much better. Um, however, and this is one thing that my mission taught me, I had every single day new context, and I could not anticipate the circumstances of everything. It was always a different experience, meeting different people, trying to find out how I could help these people, doing so in a foreign language that I couldn't understand. Would I even be able to understand this person? This person's going to speak differently. So like what Chad said, 30 miles an hour is different in different circumstances, and it's entirely, and so you're tempted to think it's entirely different, and I need to start from ground zero. But I would argue with that very firmly in the sense of focusing on process instead. If you can have a process that you have that allows yourself to prepare for, to perform, whatever that may be, whether it's speaking to the person that you're interested in the, at the bar, or whether that's lining up at a bike race or anything in between, if you have a process that you can refine, you can at least trust in that. And you can know, and you can have receipts that every time you've done that process, you've performed. And if you have those receipts, that process can be super helpful. And that's something for me, I've in racing, I tell myself that I can anticipate the circumstances. I'll research the course, I'll research the race. I'll look at how past races have gone. I'll do all of that stuff. But then in the moment, it's going to be different. I can't just have calculated, you know, chess moves all the way up the board. 
there's another person playing and it's just chance and chaos. So have a process. It makes such a huge difference. Have that process be yours. And then you have to refine that process over a ton of reps. But if you do that, that's a really good antidote against unanticipated circumstances that will otherwise put you automatically before the challenge or threat even appears into that flight response beforehand. Yeah. Amber. I just want to follow one last thing. Um, I just want to reiterate, it's not easy to embrace vulnerability and uncertainty. It's really hard for all of us, but the alternative is letting life pass you by. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and be a bike racer. I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and do something, you know, that's really scary, but I do want to challenge you to consider how you might be holding yourself back from potentially fulfilling experiences and maybe just knowing that you can work with your autonomic nervous system, you can work with your hard wiring and make it a powerful ally that you can have your own back so that when you do choose to challenge yourself, you feel confident in your ability to handle any outcome, no matter what happens. Hey, I want to say awesome. another thing too. Sorry. <laughs> Just keep going forever. But, we have lots uh, of thoughts. <laughs> David, when you think about it, like if the fear is I need to perform to my potential in this race, that's the wrong mindset. I think it is, I cannot perform to my potential until I race 200 times. Okay. Yeah. So until I do 200 crits, I am not going to get even close to my potential. It's like, just like, I am not going to get to my, uh, my physical potential until I do this many workouts. And if you came into the, set, to the first train road workout is that is your potential and you need to maximize it. It seems like such a foreign concept, right? Where you're like, of course, I'm going to get better at it. Of course, I'm going to get better at it. And you don't call that choking. You just say, that's where I am meeting yourself where you are, where if yeah. you have that same thing in races and you say, Hey, the process is I got to do 200 crits before I feel comfortable in a crit. And then it's like, well, I'm not going to feel comfortable in the first crit. That's what happens to everyone. No one's going to perform. Nobody performs to their potential at all. And then it's not such a big deal. Yeah. Exactly. It's a good way to disarm the situation for sure. And then it allows you to perform well. Um, we're going to go into rapid fire for the rest of this here. And then ha. one thing I need, I need to mention. <laughs> yeah, I know. It'll be, it'll be a very stark contrast. I promise you. Um, the one thing that I want to mention with this before though, is the successful athletes podcast. We've had some awesome episodes with Lydia Gould. She is, uh, she didn't even mention this on the podcast. We really, we really wanted to focus on her last year, but she's a multi-time world champ, uh, which is just so impressive, but she started using trainer road this year and she had a thought, there's no way I can improve. And there's no way I can get better at VO two max. Those are the two things I'm too old to improve. And there's no way I'll get better at VO two max. And she started using trainer road. She started focusing on that work that was specific for cyclocross, which she loves to do. Guess what? She got way better at VO two work. She learned how to manage it and she got faster. Um, even at 64 years old, which is pretty awesome. So even as a former really world champ. Yes. As a former world champ. Exactly. So that's awesome episode. Yeah, it's, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's sorry. why we say our contact is get our, our tagline is get faster and not get fast because everyone can get faster. Like even the Ambers and the world champs of the world <laughs> can also get faster. Yeah. Yeah. And another example of that, uh, just this past weekend too, what was Joe's episode where we talked about uh, a bunch of different things about how he went sub 10 Ironman. Now how he's going into bike racing with this growth mindset. 
end of basically like, how can I improve? What do I need to do? What can I learn from every single race? It's dovetailing off of this question that we just covered here that Amber covered so well. That podcast is a great compliment. So the link to the successful athletes podcast is down in the description below on the YouTube video and the podcast. So scroll down, check that out. If you listen to this podcast, you'll love that podcast. I promise you. So it's really good. We have some new ones or new ones coming out every week as well. So Okay. Uh, I think this might be best fit as a rapid fire question. I'm curious what all the regular host favorite tires are in a few categories. Let's take this one by one first road. And he says pure road, including racing. So I uh, no gravel stuff. Mine are the specialized S works turbo 26s. They wear out so fast, uh, but they perform really, really well on road races. They, they give you a grippy feeling. I feel like I have, like it spreads out that razor thin edge of Quick, I'm fine. John. And I crash Quick. something broad. <laughs> I just, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> I just giving you poo-poo. Sorry. <laughs> Go, you share yours. <laughs> Victoria course of speed plus for crits. And then the GP 5,000 TLs for road races. Cool. Chad. What Jonathan said. Ooh, nice. Amber. Whoever's sponsoring me at the moment. It's <laughs> <laughs> an appropriate response. Uh, he says all road, including some sort of mild gravel, um, I like the, oh, they're really puncture prone, but Max's Velocitas are pretty fast. I've used those. And then also those Schwalbe ones, um, not pro one tubeless, but mm -hmm. G ones, they have like little round dots all over them. Super slow on the road is at least what they feel like, but those are good. Nate. Pathfinder pro specialized. Ooh, yeah. I want to try that one. That looks good. Chad, do you have one? Whatever's on my road bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amber, is it the same answer? Who's <laughs> ever special? Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. For gravel, I don't know. I, uh, those Pathfinders might be pretty good. I've really liked the WTB Riddler. It's felt like a great tire. That's my tire. Has some good edge grip to save me when I go off the edge. I will say for, for gravel, the, the wider ones are really nice. Like 38s are are bomber. Like yeah, big volume. Big over, over knob for sure. Mm -hmm. And we're not even going to get into mountain bike tires at some point. Uh, we'll put in the <laughs> forum, the picture of our tire rack in the office. It's absurd. So, um, okay. Next one says, uh, thanks for your advice. I've successfully implemented <clears throat> weightlifting into my base training. My questions around weight training during recovery week. I'm currently starting my recovery week and I'm planning on not lifting weights. Is this the correct strategy? Should I do a light day? Should I lift as normal? Thanks for all your help. The podcast has definitely made me faster. So lifting during a recovery week, what do you say, Chad? Yeah. So it mostly depends. It depends on uh, the type of loading you're doing both on the bike and in the gym, because if you're doing base training and strength training, those two actually work really well together. But if you're doing something that's metabolically taxing, on the bike and then doing something that's metabolically taxing in the gym during recovery week can be really counterproductive. You have to look at your fatigue coming into the week. If you're dead tired, you probably shouldn't lift at all or keep it very light. Uh, but if you're feeling fresh and you want something to fill the void over the course of that week, you can probably get away with lifting. And then what's your recovery week look like? Because some recovery weeks, if you're a high volume rider, can still be a fairly hefty load. And if you're going to pile strength training on top of that, it could be a little too much for you. So really, this is about, and, and I'm trying to get away from the trial and error term. Rather, it's about iteration. Do something, see if it works. If it doesn't, change it. Do it, see if it works. Cool. Greetings coaches. I have another one of those super important questions. What bottle cages and bottles do you use specifically and why? Um, and then he also says, what is your philosophy when choosing such equipment? So, uh, I, I've, uh, never had issues, never once dropped a bottle ever with the specialized rib cage. Never. 
So, and same thing with the Z cage on the mountain bike. Uh, I use those for side loading because tiny frames with a shock in the way gets really tough. And this is your experience on inside the triangle because it's different behind the saddle for triathletes mm. or in front of the, uh, in between your arrow bars. Yeah. Great point. Yep. Absolutely. Those are the best ones I've had. I've never lost one. Nate, I think you use the same cages. Have you ever lost a bottle with them? I've never lost them, but I've seen many road races where they're littered with bottles. And then for triathlon, when there is a bottle behind me on my seat, I use the uh, Gorilla Cage XL, which is a very, like, you got to pull that sucker out. But it, there's like an injection point that really happens on triathletes with saddles on the back. So uh, with uh, cages on your saddle. So make sure you get a very, like a tighter one tighter grip they become bottle launchers not bottle cages bottle rockets. Say, is that like is that part of the race strategy like someone's coming up behind you and you're just like release the bottles yes. it's mario kart with like bananas spy, yeah. <laughs> spy hunter yeah those are the ones i've used i've never had issues with them i've tried a bunch of different ones one thing i will say is that whenever somebody recommends running a bottle cage then putting grip tape on it that means it's a bad bottle cage you should just like <laughs> like just get a better bottle cage another thing so, to, uh, one more thing to think about is the bottle and bottle cage combo is, mm -hmm. uh, we've That's had good luck with the purest bottles in the specialized cages, which are, those are the same brand. So if you mm -hmm. put another one in there, it, you, your results might differ. Yeah. And, and purest bottles are probably the most common ones, those in Camelback. But like, if you go to an event, a lot of the time, the purest bottles are the free bottle you get in your swag bag or something like that. So they're really common. Um, so yeah, it does vary per bottle. So, uh, okay. Next one, we're going to jump down to says, I've been using the Ironman training plan, which gives excellent guidance on how hard to do training rides, uh, when and what intervals to do, et cetera. But for race day, how much power should I be putting out? And I'm going to keep this one really brief. If you're doing, and there's an article that's fantastic on this, it's how to build a uh, pacing plan for your next race. Jesse wrote it. It's fantastic. Everybody should go check it out. Um, if you're riding for a half Ironman, probably somewhere around 0.7 to 0.8. If you're riding, uh, you can err on the side of caution though. If you're really worried about the run, if you're going to be doing that's for full, if you're doing half 0.75 to 0.85, perhaps, um, depending on once again, your pacing plan. Um, so yeah, that should be, give you a good idea. But honestly, if everybody just went to that article, you would have such a great resource because Jesse breaks it down in great detail there. It's so. just before we, someone messages me, it depends on how long and how fast you're going. Or if you're doing a four and a half hour split, it's much different than if you're doing a seven hour split. Yep. A hundred percent. Okay. With that, let's cut it off here at this one. Uh, we have one more question that we are planning on, on addressing, but, uh, we, we got into some great detail on all the other ones there. So uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, let us know with a thumbs up down below. If you're watching right now on the live stream, give it a thumbs up. That means more people will see it. If you're listening to this podcast, give us a rating five star reviews, please. And if we don't deserve a five-star review, just message us, go to support at trainerroad.com and let us know how we could do better. Submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And please, uh, I know that it's kind of, uh, a scary thing to do, but please submit. And I promise you I'll read them without judgment, everything else. Please submit your story to be on the successful athletes podcast. You can do so also at trainerroad.com slash podcast. There's a banner you'll click on to go to the successful athletes podcast and you can submit right there. We're getting tons of great submissions and we want to hear how train roads made you faster. With all that said, thanks everybody. We will talk to you next week. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.